But see, this is Freud again. It'll be a blow to our narcissism not to think that we're top of the heap. But if that's the case, we need a new cosmology. You know, God created the earth and the heavens in the beginning. He ain't going to cut the cake. You know, we have to ratchet it up to something quite different. And I think if we start to do that, uh, changes can, can occur. So I'm, I'm hoping to kind of push, you know, stuff in that direction. And because uh, I think it's probably true. Welcome to episode six. There are a few updates I want to give you, and then uh, I'll read the participants' bio from today, and then we'll get started. So the first being just reachability. If uh, if you would, please, if, if you like it, go on to iTunes and subscribe, comment, um, let me know you like the like what you're listening to. It really helps with findability and the way all these algorithms work. Um, the other thing to support is to look at the social media accounts and do the same thing. Follow those. You can search the Sacred Speaks on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Uh, also, the website for this podcast is thesacredspeaks.com. And the other thing you can do, of course, is to share it. It's pretty easy today. Um, I come from a music background, and the the way this podcast is really <laughs> is is spread is is a is a click of a button. It's fascinating. I used to make copies of flyers and hang them up on any space that was in a public space, and people would would be able to see it and know that we were playing a show. Or I would just walk through parking lots and put them onto cars. I was that annoying, annoying piece of paper that you had to get off your windshield. Uh, and I spent hours doing that. And, and while I, I, I spend some time doing this, it's sitting in my office and um, cl- clicking buttons. The, the reach is outstanding. So I want to let you guys know about the the reach of uh, that this this podcast is is uh, has experienced. We have, and I want to say hello to folks that are listening <laughs> in all these countries. I want to read through a list of the countries that are represented in by the listeners. Um, there are people listening in United States, in Canada, and the United Kingdom, Australia, Oman, Norway, Ireland, Brazil. Switzerland, South Africa, Japan, New Zealand, France, Jordan, Austria, and Italy. Welcome, everybody. It's one of the coolest things I've I've heard in a in a while. Um, okay, so so a, f- a few more notes. Um, the music you're hearing is from Modern Nations. You can reach them at modernnationsmusic.com. And the theme song for the podcast will 
will I'm pretty sure will always be Clouds, the song from from them called Clouds. Although now I'm going to start putting in a rotation uh, bands that I knew, you know, current day and back in the music day. And so I'll be alternating those kinds of, uh, at the very end, the, the track that's played at the very end. Today is a new song from Modern Nations. It's called Erase the Sun. Um, so I think that's that's it regarding updates. So now I'll just read the participant's bio and then we'll get started. So William B. Parsons is a professor of religious studies at Rice University. He's written and edited several books, including The Enigma of the Oceanic Feeling, Oxford, 1999, Teaching Mysticism, Oxford, 2011, Religion and Psychology, Mapping the Terrain, Rutledge, 2001, Morning Religion, Virginia, 2008, Freud and Dialogue with Augustine, Psychoanalysis, Mysticism, and the Culture of Modern Spirituality, Virginia, 2013, as well as dozens of essays in multiple journals and books, he served as chair of the Department of Religious Studies at Rice University, as director of the Humanities Research Center at Rice University, as editor in the Psychology of Religion section with Religious Studies Review, and as associate editor of the International Series in Psychology of Religion. He's been a fellow at the Martin Marty Center of the University of Chicago and at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Hebrew University. Uh, Bill William Parsons is our um, is our participant today, and he has a f- fascinating take on and, and I can sit. I, I at one point I comment that he's kind of an insider outsider, so he's got a r- real knack for challenging these models and and worldviews that we adopt throughout our lives, and and we comment a little bit on how that can be really challenging for people because people begin to idealize and identify with those models and so we can stir up a lot of feelings when when we begin to poke at the world view of an individual and those world views can can really in, enlarge a perspective of reality but but they can also limit and so um i think listening to to bill today at least for me has helped help me be more mindful of that of those worldviews, and uh, to be conscious about how how my own um, influence and effect and help help with my perception of reality, and also bring more to the forefront the awareness that 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 exact worldview can can limit and uh, and isolate. So I'll. I'll I think that's yeah that's it for today. Um I'm I'm eager to bring you Bill. I'm 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 really grateful for his time. We we just shook hands and got to it. I'd been hearing about him for a long time. So I was very eager to finally sit down with him. And uh as you'll see when we start out, we <laughs> I walked into his office and we just got going and then I realized, "Hey, I've got a I got to press record because we got to get some of this." So uh thanks for listening and I'll leave it there. So I had to I had to start because you and I could probably just keep talking right. for a long long time. Right. Uh, I, I you know as I do this I, I I kind of learn how to do this of course. Right. 
and uh, and I get to meet really great people like you. And so I come in the door and we just meet each other and shake hands and then we're off and running, man. Okay. We're in the stuff. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I was reluctant to, uh, to even have the conversation that we were having when I was setting up because there's, you can tell there's such right. fire in there. And yeah. I know you're in these, uh, you're talking to students all the time and people yeah. who are interested. And so this is familiar territory for you, but I am happy. Thank you for being oh, spontaneous. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and allowing I, me to, I'm a Berkeley boy, man. That's you'll see. <laughs> allowing me to come it. in here and, uh, and, and harass you in your lovely office. Come on out to Berkeley, man. We'll go to a coffee <laughs> shop and just hang out. I'd be mean, seriously. That's what I do. So as I was uh, as I was saying earlier, this um, this whole project has been really really cool because I, it holds me to yeah. um, it holds me to something. It really yeah. does. And I, here I've known that we're doing this. And my yeah. joke to you when I walked in the door is I've been in your head for the past two weeks. Yeah. Uh, I've read articles and I'm almost finished with one of your books. I've got another yeah. one on order. Uh, and that's going to be the problem is that I'm going to get backlogged, but I'm right. I'm eager to dive further okay. in your sure. line of thinking. Okay. Um, when I when I gave an introductory, uh, some commentary on this this project, it's um, it, it, it the idea is that the kind of book leaps off the page, and we get to have a, a right. this living conversation. Of course, the book is living in a different way, but. I think that's the real advantage to doing this thing is, you know, we kind of formalize it with these microphones and then we, we query. So would you, um, would you just do us the favor? And I say us implying that there's people listening. Would you are there? <laughs> <laughs> so let's frame Humans, it in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> let's frame this in a little bit and, okay. uh, and, and let, let myself and anybody listening know, uh, I think, you know, the narrative, your narrative, as you were right. starting to say a second ago, how you right. got to do what you're right. doing and think what you're right. thinking. Well, first, where's my martini? Yeah, <laughs> I wish, right? <laughs> I just came from the dentist and I said, where's the bar? Yeah. She went, that's a good idea. She said, you know, before we had Novocaine, we would have, that's the way we did it. And I, I said, I know. It. So I, we're... I dropped something in your drink earlier, yeah. so we'll... Uh... That's good. Oh, yeah, colors, man, colors. <laughs> um, that's, that's my history, too. Yeah, so... As I was saying that, you know, when you think about your life and, you know, because of uh, my field and because of a sort of therapeutic ethos and uh, actual therapy, when I think about my narrative, I think developmentally. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, how the significant experiences and relationships and the culture of my life has in some way determined what I do. Not wholly, but I, but I do think to a, to a certain extent human beings are determined. Um, you know, I think our freedom is to be able to reflect on that determinism and then emerge out of it. That, that's really what therapy does, is to try to sort of unpack the, the determinants. But that being said, I don't think I can escape certain things about my life. And so it starts with my parents. And my dad was uh, sort of New England blue blood. And he comes from a very actually long line of of ministers and sort of famous ministers, actually. So my great-grandfather's a guy named Andy Capibody who started Groton School and who was the, uh, the, the minister that married FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, probably the most famous Episcopal minister of his day. He was a really, you know, huge figure. And his son became Bishop of New York, and, and his grandkids all became ministers. And my dad uh, was a World War II fighter pilot that became a minister. And then Episcopal, right? Not Baptist or 
pretty pretty liberal, but still New Englandy, and uh, and then immediately went to Japan to try to help the Japanese after he'd bombed the living crap out of them. So, and growing up, I heard all these stories, you know, about how great stories about how he would come out of a cloud and there'd be a Japanese fighter pl pilot flying alongside of him, and they just looked at each other and like they nodded and flew off in their separate directions. I just remember these great stories, and but you know, I grew up in Japan, and um, so. And I had three Japanese nursemaids, and I spoke Japanese. And um, I remember growing up and, you know, idealizing the Japanese flag. And, you know, I, I had kind of a Japanese ethos about me. And my mother always used to say, you know, in Japan, we would say, you you know, people adhere to the group. You know, you it's like there'd be an, if there's a nail stuck out, you hammer it in, and you're always part of the group. So I, I always tell people that I'm Japanese. And I think psychologically, you don't spend, you know, your childhood in Japan not sort of you know, feel that culture. And so I think I'm kind of a group guy. That's to say, I, I, I like the group. I like to, you know, enhance the group, other people. That's sort of as part of my, my mentality, along with this very strong maternal presence that I had. And one of our, one of my uh, nursemaids actually came to us when we came with us, when we, when we moved to California later on. Uh, so my, my dad was a minister, but he also uh, did uh, pastoral psychology. I didn't actually know this until years ago uh, when I went back to Japan. They, he started a church there um, and, uh, and a theological seminary. And when I went back and I went, the theological seminary actually has a room. It's just the William B. Parsons Jr., that's my dad's name, his room. And they have like his books. And I mean, I was, you know, I never knew it existed. And all the stuff that he was reading was stuff that I also was reading. And I was like, my God. You know, psychoanalysis is so true. I mean, I didn't even know that he had, or at least I don't remember him reading any of this stuff or ever telling me about it. Kierkegaard, the Niebuhr brothers, was there? Tillich was there? All the people that I was that I was reading in divinity school at the time. So, um, in some ways, that sort of impacted me. But he never uh, really forced any of uh, of us kids, me and my sister and my brother, go to church ever. In fact, we never did. We hated it. And he never gave us that line ever, which is kind of astounding. But somehow that gets filtered through. And then when we moved to California, we moved to Berkeley. And my father uh, became uh, politically active. And he had a church. Martin Luther King came to the church. He was thrown into jail a lot for um, protesting against uh, segregation and against the Vietnam War. And um, he became uh, more and more interested in psychology and became more part-time at the church and full-time as a therapist, and did a lot of work down at the Esalen Institute. So he was sort of, in the, in, the, in the 60s, he was one of those people that went down. He did a lot of tea groups down there. And I remember going down to Esalen and hanging out in the dunes while Dad was doing his work. And so um, I, and I remember a little, he had a little, uh, in, his, in his car, he had right on the sun visor, he had a little button that said, don't feed the ego. And I remember as a seven-year-old kid saying, Dad, what's an ego? And he said, well, <laughs> it's, it's yourself. It's not like, well, what's yourself? You're getting shifty, Dad. See, I don't know what's like, happening. <laughs> Seven-year-old kids don't know what that is. And I remember that discussion because I couldn't make sense of it. And, and I don't think little kids know that, right? They yeah. don't have an ego yet. They don't really have a self. They, you know, the, the structures aren't there. So, uh, so that clearly impacted me. And my mother, uh, on the other hand, came from sort of man, mainline Philadelphia crowd. And she was an artist. Uh, she was a nurse and then an artist. Um, and she became a psychiatric nurse uh, later on in her life. 
But when we were in Berkeley, she started a, a gallery, and a lot of very famous artists came through. And they always came over to our house for dinner. Uh, some of the reigning, uh, you know, artists in, later in, in California came came to be known as sort of reigning artists, and they came through. and And she was a extremely radical, more radical even than my dad was uh, politically. So I had this kind of social justice, you know, I, I was too small to or young to really, you know, know a lot of this stuff. But but clearly that be- impacted my my upbringing, this kind of, you know, emphasis on there were wrongs in society and social justice was very important. So anyway, I, I, I took all of that when we moved to, to Boston. And um, before you go up in yeah, Boston, yeah, I, yeah. would you what yeah. were the years that you were at, at that? Stage? So it was in the 60s. It was in, in the, the Berkeley, 60s. So yeah. So. Yeah, so 65, 64, 65 to 70 wow, uh, yeah. were so it was really during the turmoil in, in, in Berkeley. It. And even though I was young, it was it was clearly something that that sort of was in my blood. And um and you, you know my 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 parents were really in, immersed in that. And it, this is interesting actually because um a guy named George Valiant. I don't know if you heard of George Valiant. I haven't. Okay, so he's a famous uh, Harvard psychiatrist that wrote a book about um, it's called the Grant Study. It was it was about Harvard boys, basically, you know, uh, it, at Harvard. And JFK was in his study, and um, a lot of you know f- very famous you know white Protestant males who who later is this uh, the longitudinal study that's gone on for four generations? Yes, and yeah, yes. okay, yeah. So he's the guy that sort of started that, and um, and then he wrote a book uh, about it. Mm-hmm. Um, despairing of the title something like adaptation to life or something like that and um so he uh my dad was in that study and i actually got a call from george valiant uh, about a year ago i mean i knew who george valiant was i hadn't ever talked with him it's about 80 at the time and he called me it's like 6 30 and i don't know why i was in my office my god but i was just about to you know go and i got this phone call and i just picked it up and he said uh hi bill i said hello he said this is george valiant you know who i am and i said yeah i know who you are and he said, I want to talk to you about your dad. And I said, okay. <laughs> I was a little suspicious because he had done some things. I mean, I read the book. I knew where my father was in, in, in the book. And he went on. And he wasn't flattering my dad or me. I mean, he just said, you know, your dad was number one. He was the best of the best of the best. In the grand study, he was number one, head and shoulders number one. And in other words, he was their golden boy. And, and then he wanted to find out what had happened to my dad. And I was like, what do you mean what happened to my dad? And he said, well, the whole Berkeley thing and the smoking of the pod and the, you know. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know if that, I would classify that as being something that happened to my dad. I, I think more like the scales came, fell from his eyes. <laughs> and he, different he, lens he, here. he woke. <laughs> Contemporary, you know, my student, he woke. And he's like, no. And I couldn't quite, you know, he was like, you know, my dad actually ended up dying of a brain tumor. And he said, well. Maybe it was the brain tumor. It was just beginning then. And I went, well. So anyway, he was convinced that, that my f- father had fallen off the the best of the best bandwagon and that this had. And I, you know, growing up in that atmosphere was of a completely different sort of, you know, had a completely different perspective. I was yeah. like, no, that's actually the way we need to go. You know, he, 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 he became more enlightened. So, but, you know, so I still haven't quite... Uh, rectified that in my mind because i didn't want to basically i just don't want to go back and read all of george's works and and find some way of sort of arguing with him on intellectual grounds but i I think there's a kind of a conceptual problem there so both my sister and my brother and i were 
very, very irritated at the whole thing. So I, I don't want to rag on George right now because, uh, I mean, I, I, I really need to go back and read his stuff analytically, and I'm certainly capable of doing that. I think maybe he doesn't quite have enough, you know, of an anthropological and sociological lens. Psychologists are notorious for thinking they're the right. queen of the social sciences, and they don't need these other social sciences. And so there's a way in which I think all psychology is ethno psychological uh -huh. that's what they are so I, d I don't know if he would really cotton to that but at any rate um so this was sort of you know in my blood and 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 uh, when we moved to cambridge it was kind of going back to the old you know protestant ethic which you know immediately they tried to sort of you know push me into which i rebelled because i was a kid with long hair i'm also the hippie the berkeley hippie and this stuff scared me all these you know young boys with coats and ties and Groton, you know, they wanted me to go to Groton, and I was like, Groton, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, I was beside myself, so I, you know, was able to make sure that that didn't happen to the chagrin of my entire, you know, father's side of the family. Um, but that's when I went to a small private school in Boston instead, which was, was I was telling you, sort of super mm -hmm. intellectual, and uh, that I wasn't never felt that I was quite as smart as those those other students and but I was good, good enough at music to sort of hang out and um, so when I went to college I was you know a music major and as I was telling you I was terrible and I kind of had to change my major because I was not good enough and secretly I wanted to go into sports this is the other thing you know I started a hockey team when I was at, in high school because I I'd never you know been in the west coast knew what hockey was but when I got to Boston they played hockey. The Charles River froze over. We could skate on the river. I was like, wow, this is the great, coolest thing ever. And I was super into sports, and I was into hockey. I was into tennis. But I sucked at that, too. So <laughs> my brother actually was quite good. He got a soccer scholarship to college. He was he was the best soccer player and in his, you know, in his, um, it wasn't a boarding school, but it was another sort of super Boston sort of private school. And he won on an all-paid expenses tour to his college. Uh, he, he actually was an athlete, but I, I was a failed athlete. So I kind of ended up in philosophy. And um, my advisor uh, said, you know, you should think about going to divinity school. And I said, what? And he said, well, you know, you come from this family. And I went, yeah, but he said, why don't you go to university divinity school, you know, where you don't have to, like, become a minister if you don't want it. So I ended up going to Yale for what they call Master of Divinity, which is a three-year divinity degree. And a lot of these uh, university uh, divinity schools have um, have seminaries attached to them. Mm -hmm. So Yale had something called Berkeley Divinity School, which just happened to be Episcopal. And the guy who was head of that was a guy named Bishop Kelly Clark, who had been my dad's student. <laughs> Not kidding. And so when he got a hold of me, it was like, oh, Bill, you know, you're – your dad was my, you know, mentor. And, of course, they wanted me to go off. And, by the way, there's a picture of my dad right there. I don't know if you noticed this, but here he is. I haven't, although yeah, I've that's, been checking your stuff dad. out. Okay, so that's my sister there. And this is my mom uh, right here. And what's interesting about her is she has some Native American blood in her. Mm -hmm. You can see this so just in the picture. Yeah. So um, at any rate... Um, you know, that's sort of the way it panned out. I don't have my brother up there, but... Your dad looks like a bunch of buddies of mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was... Uh... I've been hanging out with that guy. Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's actually a very good guy. Yeah. So, um, almost all those people are dead, by the way. So, except me and my sisters. 
the picture of the the dead the dead crowd. Uh, they weren't dead when I put them up. Right, sure, sure. Um, and this is a winter classic. This is the Bruins against Philly. You can see that. Uh, you know, it shows my hockey roots. So, at any rate, uh, so where was I? Oh, yeah, present. So, yeah. so I went to Divinity School, and uh, I became uh, completely entranced with with psychology. Um, I took half my courses downtown at Yale College proper, and in the graduate departments there. And I became, um, int uh, I took basically Hinduism with a guy named Norvin Hine, who was a huge Indologist of his day, and Buddhism with a guy named Stanley Weinstein. Uh, he mm -hmm. was also a pretty major theorist of his day. And um, I took, I went to the um, local um, psychoanalytic institute, and one of the professors at Yale was also the head of the psychoanalytic institute, and I took a year just on Freud. We just started, you know, standard edition with the first, you know, studies on hysteria. And we just worked through the entire corpus, Freudian corpus. And that's what we did with him and, and all these, uh, you know, psychologists training to be psychoanalysts. So I, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I just it was fantastic. But I was also extremely interested in comparative mysticisms. Mm -hmm. And I got this through Hinduism, Buddhism, and then uh, Christian mysticism with a guy named Louis Dupre, who was a philosopher of religion, also extremely well-known and, and deeply into uh, mysticism. And uh, Louis said, you know, if you want to get your doctorate, you know, if you don't want to go off and be a minister, which I really didn't want to do, um, you can stay here and study with me. And But I just didn't really want to do Catholic mysticism. He said, you know, I'll set, send you off to Rome and you can you know, look in the vaults of the Vatican and, you know, get all the texts. And I was like, no, nah, I really don't want to do that. Um, but then I came across the University of Chicago, which Bernie McGinn was there, and he did Christian mysticism, and they had a lot of Buddhism and Hinduism. But they had a, a psych and religion program as well. And Don Browning and Peter Holmans were in charge of that. And I said, well, that that's perfect. So uh, off I went to Chicago. And that's where I really sort of, you know, flowered as as sort of an intellectual because it was really through the guidance of that program and it was a really terrific program and I, I just love being in in, in, in chicago and, and at that program uh, that's where i really sort of started to develop uh, my my intellectual interests which which correspondingly were were psychology and religion but with an attendant um aside to culture studies mm -hmm. and then the comparative study of of mysticism and spirituality if, if, if i could jump in right there yeah, yeah sure and not to go too far afield yeah. here, but I am curious, given your your background, what makes a good program? Well, I, I think what made it a good program were, number one, the quality of the professors there. I mean, and the, it was really, I still think Chicago, I don't know about now, but, but then it was the reigning Department of Religion on the planet. Yeah. And it was, Mercy Iliade was there, yeah. Paul Recur was there, Martin Marty was there. Um, Bernie McGinn was there. Wendy Doniger was there. I, I literally everybody there was, you know, at the very top of their field, and they all had to exist in the same building. Literally, I mean, it was called Swift Hall and had a great coffee shop. It's a wonderful coffee shop, and you know, University of Chicago is basically ten thousand graduate students and a bunch of undergraduates. It's really not a school for undergraduates. I would never go there as an undergraduate. It's very tough on the undergraduate. They'd have to take five classes a semester. They're all freaking out. And they were in a very small plot of land on the south side of Chicago with 
10,000 graduate students. And so it's like you're going back to schools and undergraduate, only it's for graduate students. And really, basically, all the departments were that way. And so the ideas would come hot off the presses. And all the professors knew each other, and they'd be talking about these ideas as they came down the pike. It was an extremely exciting place to be. <laughs> I mean, it really was. It's just, it's just, there's nothing, no place like it in my view. And and they had a lot of interdisciplinary work, right? So not just the did school, but they would, you know, have a lot of programs with the with psych department or sociology or anthropology. I took a lot of my classes over there. Uh, so it was, um, it was very well structured in terms of, you know, the hurdles that you had to pass in order to get your, your doctorate. Mm-hmm. So you really learned a lot, and and it was it was difficult, and you know the the myth of the ten of the decade long doctorate is not a myth. There were people who were there for a decade because that's how long it took them to get through the program. Wow. But when you were through, usually you know something was waiting for you because uh, everyone in religion knew at least at that point in time that there were there was quality people coming out of that program. So when you joined a a department of religion, there would always be other people from Chicago there. And there was some remarkable number of, of the, the number of, of faculty that had their PhDs from Chicago. Uh, It's like 20 to 30%. And when I came here, that was about right. So we had, you know, eight faculty or something, and we had three from Chicago. So, you know, but that's what happens to the search committees. They look and they say, oh, it's a Chicago product. And then immediately you're, you're in the, the circle. It right. doesn't mean you'll get the job, but you're in the circle. So I don't know if that's true anymore, but it sure was in my day. Um, so it was really a formative period of time for me, and um, I can't speak highly enough of, of that program. Um, but, you know, when I came down here, I, you know, was pretty well interested in this kind of intersection between um, sort of the therapeutic world and psychological models. Well, and and yeah. so did you go from... Chicago to come down here? I did. And it was remarkable that I got this job. And, you know, the talk about luck. I mean, I always tell the graduate students this story because um, I say, you know, sometimes just luck will get you a job. Mm-hmm. And there were, it was a religion and culture uh, search, which means that that's a very broad area. So they had people doing Zoroastrianism applying for that job, right? It wasn't just psych of religion. It was just across the map. And so they whittled it down to five. But one of the reasons I I got to be one of the five is because my best buddy from Chicago was on the search committee. He'd gotten a job at Rice four years earlier. And so since he was on the the committee, he kept putting my dots, (laughs) trying to convince people that I should be what they call shortlisted. And then another guy who was on the uh, committee uh, had been one of my teachers at Yale. So he knew who I was. It was like, oh, Bill. Oh, yeah. So and then the chair was actually Anne. And and her husband, Harvey Aronson, of course, was doing a lot of work in psych and Buddhism. And so uh, my friend Jerry and John were convincing her that basically I did a lot of Harvey stuff. And so she was like, oh, that's very interesting. I mean, literally, that's how I got to be shortlisted. But I was I was like, I think, very pretty much on the bottom. I, mean, I was four or five as far as the, the five were concerned. I was way down the pike in terms of, uh, they were going to hire a guy. Um, excuse me, this is going to be a uh, someone calling me. I'm just going to turn that <laughs> off. Another person seeking money. Um, so uh, 
but, but this is a true story. And I, I say this for the graduate students out there who might, who might eventually listen to this podcast. But um, the, the number one guy who had two books out and who was a shoo-in to be, you know, hired, his mother died a week before his interview. And apparently he, he just completely cracked up. And his wife called the chair of the department and said, we're, we're not coming down anymore. He had a job in California, but he wanted to move to Rice. Mm-hmm. But she said, he can't, he can't handle it right now. We're, we're just going to withdraw from the position. Really sorry, but this is, this is what, what happens with life. So he was out. The second guy was uh, from England. And um, he was um, at Cambridge. And literally, about a week before he was supposed to come down, they arrested him. Uh, because he had beaten the living crap out of a fellow graduate student. And so what they did was they thought he was a little nutty, and they went into his dorm room, and they found that he had basically stolen 150 books from the from the library, from the Cambridge Library. So <laughs> he, he wasn't coming down. So now it's down to three. This is all true. So three of us came down. Now, one of the guys uh, ended up being a guy named Gary Laterman, who was a colleague and a friend of mine now at Emory. He's chair of the department. Oh, this is the uh, the guy you want to introduce Sacred me Matters to. Yes, guy. Okay, it. so Great. he came down. He was a graduate student from Santa Barbara. And he was brilliant, but he his talk was on death and religion in American culture. And apparently he came dressed, and I haven't told Gary this story yet, in complete a uh, complete black outfit and he was tall and very thin and he was kind of ashen like very very which prompted the chair to say and he had a very high-pitched voice and a german accent he said we, we need more life in this department not death this is apparent this is what was conveyed to me so he was out so it came down to me and this other guy and this other guy was like a super genius and people were saying this guy's a super genius you don't have a chance well uh they did a faculty vote and it was tied and so they went to the dean, and turns out that this other guy, this brilliant guy, had gotten his doctorate from Rice. And the dean said, well, you know, we need to hire people, not, not our own, but other people. That's how I got the job. Basically, you know, chips just fell, and there was one person left, and that was me. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I was this great thing that they – it was kind of like, you know, I was last in line, and everyone just kind of fell away. And so I'm not, you know, being overly humble here. I'm just saying that's how I got the job. And I tell my graduate students this because you just never know. And so a lot of times it's also who you know. Because if my buddy and, and, and John had not been on the search committee, there's no way I would have been shortlisted. So it's called the, I call it the weak link theory, that when you're a graduate student, you need to talk to a lot of people and get your name out yeah. and have a lot of lectures so that people kind of know who you are. And that's a weak link. And you never know if, if the person you shook hands with at one of the conferences might be on a search committee and they'll say, oh, I remember that person. So uh, – and I tell them that story to make them feel better because, you know, if I get a job, I'm saying you can get a job. Right. So I got the job. Um, although the guy who bequeathed the money for my position, which was at that point a, an endowed chair – ended up hating me because he wanted me to do what he called first century Protestantism. And I was like, first century Protestantism, first century. What was, gee, was Protestant, was Protestantism even, uh, you know, extant in the first century? Of course, he was trying to make an army that it was. And I was like, no, no, dude, it's, no, that's 15th century, 16th century. So, uh, and, and he also wanted me to use um, science to buttress the claims of Christian theology. So, 
he actually tried to get me fired, um, but that didn't, you know, fortunately Rice was was wise enough to not allow that to happen. But it got back to me as a young assistant professor before I was tenured, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get tenured because of this guy, but that what, didn't happen. What an origin myth. Oh, it's just really, <laughs> it, yeah, that's exactly right. It was, it was, and I'm not going through what else happened. It was a sure. horror show. Um, but, you know, I ended up staying here. And, um, and then of course, um, you know, the day I got tenure was also the day that the department fell apart and the chair left for Notre Dame. And then two or two of our reigning stars retired. So the whole department was falling apart and there's really no one else on the faculty that could be chair, but me. And usually full professors are chairs, not associate professors. Mm -hmm. And I was newly minted, uh, as a, as a tenured professor and the Dean hauled me in and said, uh, Bill, I don't want to make you chair, um, but I might have to because um, there's no one else in your department to be chair. And if you're not chair, then we'll have to put the entire department under receivership, which means under the receivership of another department. It's going to be the philosophy department. Right. And I said, well, good, because I don't want to be chair. And I, that's exactly what I said, because I didn't. And he said, well, you're, you're going to be chair, but I'm going to be watching you. And I said, oh, shit, you know. Uh, but, you know, I came in and um, I just thought, well, I'll get on my horse and, you know, it's the Wild West and I'll do what I can. And sure enough, you know, we, the, the dean actually ended up really liking me, um, famously, um, on a drunk fest at a restaurant where he invited me and we proceeded to get drunk on Sapphire Bombay <laughs> martinis, which I'd never had before, but they were blue. And uh, they're kind of sparkly, you know. So after three of those, I basically said, this is what I want, you know. And he kind of said, well, I like you, Bill. And so we shook hands, and he whatever I wanted, he, he gave me. Mm -hmm. And he's passed away, but he's a great, great guy. And, again, that's just luck, right? So, But Jeff was hired, and Tony Penn was hired, and mm -hmm. uh, the whole department was transformed. And uh, – it was great. It was really wonderful, and we're we're very happy now. So, when you were here, what? Yeah. When did this exploration of the? I mean, I don't even know. I know that there's this psychoanalytic influence because you spent the right. year studying right, essentially right. Freud, and then yeah, yeah. mysticism right. and comparative religion, the study of religion. But you you've written about it. I, I noticed, you know, it was on. I think it was in quotations. You know, the, the the psychology of religion, and you put the and in there: psychology and religion. Right. Okay. And so I'm curious about this intersection. I mean, as a right. as a person who's trained um, yeah. a, as a Jungian um, right. yeah. psychological mind, and I shared with you earlier, I've been so excited about our conversation because you're kind of the insider outsider, yeah. where you have such a uh, I don't know, in reading your work, you have such a great perspective at, uh, at, at all of it. You know, I don't get the sense that you've, you, you know, you drank the Kool-Aid necessarily. Right. And, and so I, I wonder if you could speak a bit about how that sure. you know, came Sure. Okay, good. Okay. So that's it for the history stuff. And, uh, and, and we're all very happy here in the department, the gym program, Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism. Which has me just yeah. ready and eager to jump into another PhD program. It's, it's so cool, and, and it's, you know, a lot of faculty are involved in that, and so that's been ginned up, and we get along together. We're around the same age, and so, you know, it's, it's a wonderful, you know, collegial department, which you don't always get. So um, that's, you know, my biography and, and my sort of academic tract. So, but more sort of in terms of my work, uh, what ended up happening was that 
um, you know, I, I was very interested in psychology and in therapy. And, you know, like anyone in this field, uh, if you don't go into therapy, you don't really understand the field from the inside out. And fortunately, since my dad had been a therapist, um, you know, from the time we were young, we were in group therapy with family therapy all the way through. So I've had a lot of experience there. And, um, and in college, I, I studied with, with psychoanalysts. And so that, that was sort of my home. Uh, so the question was, was, was I going to be a therapist? And I thought long and hard about that. But I'd also had a lot of influence from uh, people, not necessarily in the, in the therapeutic world, but more in the, in the introspective traditions of the mystical element in the world's religious traditions. Maybe I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. And they had different kinds of techniques, meditative techniques, mantra techniques, prayer techniques, physical techniques, yoga, tai chi, qigong, things like that. And I had also come across a lot of those figures. And that made me think that maybe some of the therapeutic world, that they didn't really understand those people very well. And that maybe that part of me would get lost if I just ended up being a therapist. Because it can be a very insular, closed world. And you get, you know, socialized into your models and think that's all there is to humanity. Right. So in by being a, a, you know, a university professor, um, I felt I had license to investigate these groups and talk to them and then maybe expand the horizons of psychology. So psychology of religion was really a good place for me to be because it's the intersection between psychology and religion mm -hmm. and the wisdom within religious traditions and and maybe the the lens that psychology offers. Uh, maybe they were not adequate uh, in, in terms of unveiling or illuminating the wisdom of religious traditions, which is a, a nice way of saying that they're reductive. And so I didn't want to always be looking at myself in the mirror. So uh, as I started to go through, you know, how to con construct my own field, so to speak, I started revising my field, which is traditionally known as the psychology of religion. And so that word of always bothered me a bit. Um, and uh, one of my advisors had said, well, maybe it's better we call it psychology and religion, which means that psychology is not always the discipline that's or method that's looking at religion. Maybe there, it's a two-way street rather than a one-way street. Mm -hmm. And psychology of religion always brings up the the notion that that um, it, it, here's a here's a metaphor for you that it, it's like psychology is it has a flashlight, and then depending on the model, you have a different kind of lens, and then you shine it on this cultural phenomenon we call religion. And then what, you, what will you see? Well, you'll, you'll always see whatever the shape of the lens is. So if it's Freudian, for example, the lens is going to be triangle, Oedipus. Right. So you go in your garage, and your garage is filled with religion, and you shine it, and you're going to see triangles everywhere. And Freud was very happy with that. And, but is that all religion is? Surely he has a point. But is that all religion is? And the Jungian lens is a little bit different. Let's just say it's more circular because he deals with wholeness and self-archetypes. You'll see circles everywhere. Well, is that... That's different, but maybe the two can work together. But is is there more? So so I felt the psychology of religion was was in terms of what the field was was not a very good designation. Psychology and religion is better. It's a, it's, it's it's much more inclusive, and it's it's more respectful of religion as having its own kind of healing techniques. Mm -hmm. And after all, religion some of religion is what we call in the Western world a soteriology. It's salvific. There's no psychological lens that casts itself as a soteriology. It's therapy, but there's a distinction between the two. 
So we have some, some work to do here. So that was my first thought. Then if you look at the, the field itself, it starts right around 1880s. Um, I mean, you can go way back into the religious past and, and you find psychological ideation in Buddhism and Christianity mm-hmm. and, and all of that. But but formally speaking, it starts in the 1880s. But where did, and I, know, I noticed this in, yeah. in your paper that I read yeah. where you broke the, the three sections. Right, yeah. What about um, you know, early monastic commu- or ascetic sure. communities? You right. Know? Yeah. Isn't there a degree of psych? Yes. I mean, a, a large degree of psychological. Absolutely, you know, you've got to. Yep. You know, lifestyle stuff. You got to work out. You That's gotta, right. Uh, you know, pray this way and right. see the world this way and engage your demons in this way. That's and, right. You know, Absolutely. It, it, what I was so curious when I read that. Why? Why eighteen eighty? Well, the first psych lab actually is manufactured in 1879. Mm-hmm. I think it's William Wundt that did that. Mm-hmm. The term psychology doesn't really appear until like, I think 16th century, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. Um, so the notion that, 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 some, that somehow empirically speaking, scientifically speaking, where you have a, a data set and then you're theorizing about a data set uh, in, the, in that sort of traditional scientific way, that does not start until the 1880s. But the question is whether the insights that, that those early psychologists uh, you know, came to, whether or not some of those insights are commensurate with insights that people of previous generations, previous centuries even, also arrived at. And, and that's, that's um, you know, Freud thought that. So he goes back and he reads Plato and he reads the great poets and he, he calls them intuitive psychologists. And he writes to people and he says, you know, basically I'm just taking their insights and I... You know, I'm running through the the you know scientific mill, and I'm I'm sort of you know creating kind of a theory. It's a little bit more empirical and scientific about it, but but the insights are there. So so I, I think there is actually a kind of continuity, and I think that's important to remember. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Augustine always talks about this. You know, when he has his vision, then he comes back from the visio a day, the, the vision of God, in his great work, the Confessions. And then he realizes that there's all he calls it uh, memoria, this this sort of realm that is below consciousness, and he often refers to it as being the stomach of the mind. Well, what's that? You know, that really begins to sound like the unconscious or the subconscious or whatever. And then he says, in that that arena, that's where uh, you know dream ideation comes up. And he says, and I, I stuff happens in dreams that I thought I'd given up. He's really referring to sex dreams. Mm-hmm. He becomes celibate. And he's like, why when I close my eyes, when, when the eyes of reason closes, do I have these dreams? There's this darkness and this opaqueness. And so, you know, you know, basically the Christian life becomes a way of reforming the soul. The, you know, the, you're, that's the idea is that we're made in the, in the image of God, the imago dei. But Christianity is a way of reforming that image. And but but when he starts talking about what needs to be reformed, it really begins to sound a lot like, you know, 20th century psychology. Mm-hmm. And and the psychologists have all noted this. And the same with Buddhism; it's all about therapy. Life is suffering, right? Suffering is based on desire. Right. So there are different strategies, right? So you can, I think, it's it's right to call them early therapies, although they're really soteriologies. But but that's where you know probably the problem for me becomes because you don't want a short circuit what the wisdom is in these traditions. And psychology of religion often does that because of the nature of the models. And it's a small sample size, right? So when Freud was ginning up his models, it's fin de siècle Vienne, as the academics like to say, right? Uh, end of the century Viennese culture. Yes. Who's coming into his uh, consulting room? 
He's looking at hysteria and obsessional neurosis. He's not really understanding about, say, what we call the narcissistic personality disorders. That's sort of later that that happens. And there might be a sociology behind that, too. It's really after World War II that that gets ginned up. Why? Well, it's an interesting point, right? Because there are a lot of families that are busted up after World War II. And the clinical data is different after World War II. You know, uh, people coming in with narcissistic personality disorders because the families are, are in disarray. So then they begin to theorize it uh, a, a lot more than Freud ever did. So, um, so, so, so psychology of it needs to be put in cultural context. Mm-hmm. All of these models do. And it's not to say they're not true. It just means that there's a social base because of the, the data they're getting, the data set. It's not the Dalai Lama that they're, they're having in their clinical um, you know, sessions. Right. So um, and we're doing that more and more, but, but not in that day. So, so when I began to think about the field, you know, I, as you said, I, I basically ginned up this threefold sort of periods. It got 1880 to 1944, which is almost the end of World War II, and then 45 to 1969, which is the inception of transpersonal psychology, and then 1970 until now. And I, I'm perfectly willing to say those are debatable, you know, you know, eras. Um, I like them because that first period you have the three greats, right? Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, and William James. And then you have all these other players that sort of, you know, they're around, but only scholars sort of know about them. I mean, right. who who's heard of Joseph Marichal? I mean, Catholic theologians have, but who else? Richard Maurice Bucky, um, who the hell was he? Well, you know, he's the cosmic consciousness guy. And mm-hmm. so um, some people have heard of him. A lot of people have not. And you know, what about Theodore Flournoy? I mean, you know, I mean, there are a lot of figures that people just no longer study. Um, but people who do know now uh, who James Freud and, and Jung were, any educated person, those are names that they that they know. So those become sort of the, the significant figures. And then you go to the second period and you get similarly some great figures. You know, Eric Erickson. Well, most people mm-hmm. know who Eric Erickson. Abraham Maslow. Well, most people know who Abraham Maslow is. So it, it just... You know, and then new models are, are gin, ginned up, right? Psychoanalysis, archetypical psychology, uh, James's pragmatism, or ego psychology, or humanistic psychology, transpersonal psychology, neurocognitive psych, which is big in the third period. So I, I like that the way of distinguishing these eras because it, it it makes it manageable. So psychology and religion sort of refers to this historically this 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 sort of big 1880 until now, you know, academic field. But then I went further and I saw what I call projects or enterprises within this vast field that I call psychology and religion. And the predominant one is psychology of religion, which is usually the name for the field. But I've basically dethroned that and said it's a project within this field that I like to call psychology and religion. And I'll I'll tell you why. So psychology of religion is where you do get a model, which is the flashlight, and you shine it on religion. And what you see is what the model illuminates, which I think is fine. There's no problem with that. I just don't think that that is the only thing that religion is, that there's I, a lot more in there. I want to jump in here. Yeah, yeah. Would, would The way you're using the term religion here, mm-hmm. would you define that? Yeah. Okay. So that's a really good question. And I let the theorists themselves define it. Uh-huh. So, and this is a problem within uh, department of, uh, uh, the departments of religion and in the field as a whole how to define religion. And it, it, there's a lot that's been written on this. Yeah. So um, the way that I've dealt with it in my own field is that, it, I mean, if you look at Freud, and he actually does define what he means by religion. He calls it the common man's religion. Mm-hmm. 
And so when he writes to theologians and philosophers or mystics, and they say, you know, you, we get what you're saying and we, we, you know, understand that you have a contribution, but you're missing out on other aspects of religion. His response is a stock answer. That's not religion. What religion is, is what he calls the common man's religion, which is Oedipal, which deals with a mighty personality, which is always male, and that basically forces people to buy into this sort of, you know, Western Judeo-Christian doctrine of God that promotes a certain kind of historical process. And if you're good and you behave, you end up going to heaven or hell or whatever it is. And he said, that's what the religion is. And he calls it the common man's religion, which is sort of the religion for the masses. It's a very simple kind of religion. So he's not really dealing with Eastern religions. He's not dealing with, you know, Afro-Cuban religions. He doesn't know anything about them, really. And he's he's knocking off the mystics and the philosophers and the theologians. He he accuses them of taking God and and you know playing with the concept until it's like abstract and philosophical and it bears no resemblance to this kind of common man's religion that he's actually, you know, trying to 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 analyze. So uh and Jung does the same thing. So so Jung is is he takes it from Rudolf Otto. And so Otto basically has this notion of the numinosum. And so when Jung gets to his lectures, Terry lectures at Yale, he wrote a book called Psychology and Religion, interestingly enough. And it's he leans it a little bit differently than me. But, uh, you know, these are famous lecture series given at Yale. And he says, what do I mean by religion? He says, well, um, it's this original experience of the numinosum, which was Otto's fancy term for kind of a mystical experience. And then he goes on to say, well, creeds and dogma and scripture and institutions, that's very secondary. What's central to religion is this original experience. And and he likes that because what is the experience of the archetype in, in its more, most pure form? Well, that's an experience of numinosum. So basically, he's now able to say what religion really is, is, is archetypical. So it fits right in with his psychology. And, and, and so that's okay, but that's not where Freud's going. That's not the way that he that Freud is defining it at all, and 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 Jung's way of defining it using Otto historically is very modern. So um, you know one of the points about the you know in the trade we we use uh, we call genealogies. These are origins and developments of terms that we use. Mm-hmm. So terms like mysticism or spirituality. These are Western terms, and they go well well back into the Western past, into into early Greek thought, into early Christian thought. And when Jung uses Otto to talk about mystical experience, i.e. the numinosum, that's very modern. And it's not what those folks way back when had in mind at all. It's very unchurched, actually. So, so Jung's entire psychology, which is a kind of religion, really, in my view, and I'll get to that momentarily, um, it, it just couldn't have been ginned up in the second century. It's, 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 it's a modern phenomenon. And I'm not saying it's bad or, or good. I'm just saying that his way of construing religion has to be understood historically. It has to be understood culturally. And there may be, you know, something to it, but, you know, that's where this term psychology and religion comes in, where you have to now dialogue with what religious traditions are saying about the way they're construing these terms. And and we run into some problems. I'll get to that momentarily. So when you ask me, you know, how am I defining religion? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, not answering it. I'm saying I'm allowing each theorist to define it in their own terms. And then I'm contextualizing that. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's an important thing to do because they're all 
dealing with different things. Well, I think that's the problem that I hear so often when we get these kind of warring parties that go get into conflict. Right. And so often I listen to these sides, you know, so to speak, right. and I'm and I'm hearing an utter um, difference in their definition of terms. Yes, and yeah. you know, you'll hear that you know the atheist and and you know what they're right. really railing against, and I'll say, well, that that's fundamentalism. Yeah, and. And so it, it's it's fascinating, and I yeah. think that's one of the things that really comes up for me when I'm reading your writing, is it, it's it's almost this like opening experience because it, it's it's um, it, it has me questioning kind of where are these thoughts coming from, and where are my right. biases coming from, right. and where do my assumptions come right. from, and what lineage am I right. in, and right. where did he get those thoughts, right. and it's that's the kind of Okay. And so all of a sudden I'm in this right. really expansive right. place and uh, it's it, it can be um, maybe speaking uh, in a big way here but it can be uh, off centering you know and I and I like that yeah. I, 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 that's a, that's something that I that I enjoy even though yeah. it may be a little uncomfortable because yeah. it challenges certain oh, it, assumptions it's very uncomfortable yeah so so I yeah. th- that's why I think it is so important and I like what you're saying about yeah. in allowing the individual the theorist or whomever to define their terms right and i think we need to lead with that and that's yeah. one thing that i said to kripal when i was talking to him on on this uh the podcast yeah. was i i gave otto's definition or not his definition but yeah. his comments you know on like page three or four of the the idea of the holy which right. was you know we need to define our terms that's right it's lazy to not define your terms. right so we need to use right thoughts and you know right. our, our concepts right but then hold their concepts lightly right which, which i think a lot of people don't do right i think the human tendency is to grasp into those right. concepts right and something young noted once was that he said something like the french term where concept gets its origin is a lot like um uh Essentially, I find it to be a colonialism that that kind of exists within us, where we kind of grasp and want to dominate yeah, those areas yeah, of thought. That's right. So just just I'm 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 an affirming an, an affirmation there. I think for your work that really keeps me in a yeah a, an okay open spot. Well, thank you, and I and I'm I'm glad you said that, and I, it, it actually has engendered some new, hopefully some new frames that that might also help listeners here. Is that you know one of the reasons why why the academy is sometimes um, seen as the enemy by people in um, strict religious communities is because this, the social space is very different. If you grow up in Alabama, uh, and I hate to get too political here, uh-huh. but let's just say you grow up in it's, Roy, Roy Moore's right. uh, area. And so your identifications and relationships with, with people, and you know, I'm sure some of these people are very you know, decent you know, people with, 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 with real idealizations and real love bonds. Mm-hmm. But you're fed a certain understanding of a certain religious tradition. Right. It's called Christianity. Obviously, it's not Christianity writ large because there's so many different strands of Christianity. And it may well be that we need a war on Christianity in this country. I've said this because of, of some of these you know, people who claim to be a certain religious tradition, but they seem to avow values and principles that go against some of the foundational elements of it. But I'll leave that for another discussion. So they grow up, and then, then they never question that. And and to question that is actually to attack not just the tradition, but attack their relationships with people, their idealizations, which is why, you know, um, when I say to my students about Freud, you know, one of the things Freud 
advises us, and I'm talking to my students, is when you go to your in-law's house or potential in-law's house for the first time, do not talk about sex, politics, or religion, because they're all the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, Dad, um, you, know, you just stay away. Just say, pass the turkey, and uh, how nice. Um, but so it so really seriously, it, it's hard to have an, a, a conversation just on a conceptual intellectual basis because there's so much more that they bring to the table. Right. So, but in the university space, this is a secular, pluralistic, critical social space where we are enjoined to detach ourselves from our idealizations. We de-idealize and we become critical. And that's difficult, and it's threatening. It's existentially threatening. Mm-hmm. And I can see amongst my students. They come here, and uh, they get really upset sometimes. Yeah. And I have to remind them. And some of them get on the high horse, and they want to convert the whole class to whatever. And, and, and I like my students, and I take them outside, and I say, look, you know, when you come to this space, when you walk in that door, you actually have tacitly agreed to be, uh, become part uh, or a member of a critical, pluralistic social space. That's what the university is. It's mm-hmm. not a theological social space. So, you know, um, so you can't do those things. You have to, you know, uh, abide by the principles. And if you want to logically uh, create, a, create a logical argument to defend your position, that's fine. I have no problem with that. But, you know, you are enjoined to be critical and it's going to hurt a bit. I don't tell them where to go with it, right? I just give them the methods and I'm staying out of their existential business, right? That's not my job. My job is to midwife these theories to them. And so and so it's it's problematic. And the same with the with the clinical social space. Right. Because when you get in there, it's even worse because you're getting into the unconscious and now you're really delving into all the attachments and stuff. So last time I was up at the psychoanalytic center up here on uh, Lovett, you know, I was talking about religion, and one of the therapists was like, well, we had a young Muslim kid in here, and he began to question his faith. His parents took him out immediately. So they saw what was happening, and so they took him out. Like, right. oh, well, you know, he needed help, but we didn't want the kind of help that you're giving him. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, even though that was an example from, from Islam, uh, there have been examples from Christianity oh, sure. up there as well. And some I've of my, my uh, yeah, so— in any other religious tradition, so social space is really important, and and I and I think um, you know the academy does this, and we we're always uh, critiquing, we're always looking for new ways to phrase things, and it can be existentially uh, unsettling, and we're kind of in in a liminal state, you know, for most of our lives as intellectuals because we're we're always moving, and 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 to have a tolerance of ambiguity, you have to have a real tolerance of ambiguity to be in this field in a. In a, in a in a bona fide way, uh-huh. I think. So. I, I I think that a note on critical thinking, uh, and this certainly doesn't the following doesn't mean that it's easy for me. But I've I've recently, and I think this format doing this podcast has yeah. really given me an excitement around talking to people that differ in their thinking. And I think one of the things that it will do in my own experience is either transform my own thought right. or. Uh, ask me to go inward a bit more and begin to strengthen and right. query and right. get a little, you know, into the spaces that I don't tread much right. because, I, I, you know, wh- whomever is critiquing or if ever I don't have an argument or a, an understanding, it just is my, you know, uh, a bankruptcy of, of a particular thought or something and that I haven't done my work in really digging into that. And I, that's what's been so wonderful about all this kind of work is, 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 continuing to think about these questions right, right. constantly, yeah, always on it. And right. that's one thing that I, I, I love 
the academy for that reason. And right. I think it's a it's a different understanding that I've ever had about it because right. you're yeah. constantly you're in you're in the right. soup, you know, with these right. students that are. You know, their complexes are right. coming out all over the place right. at you and it right. may stir some stuff in you, but then you get to look at that and kind of get curious and where am I, you know, yeah. and, and I, I think that's the mo- one of the most important things about this rite of passage in our culture because it becomes right. a fragmenting and right. um, uh, right. dismembering kind of mythology right. where we get ripped right. apart to yeah. reconstitute yes. something. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a good point. Um and and again, I'm glad you said that because um, I'm reminded that when I talk about this, uh, I like Erickson's notion of a moratorium, mm-hmm. which is a social institution uh, that that good societies gin up uh, that allows people, usually in late adolescence and and onwards, to to create identities. And so the university is a moratorium. It's a four year space yeah. for kids to come in and 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 experiment with who they are, what they are, and what they want to do. And I always give the story about a young woman who, as a freshman, came in, and I was having lunch down at one of the colleges, and I said, what do you want to do? And she said, well, I want to be a, a rocket scientist. And in in my day, a rocket scientist had a certain kind of a cultural, you know, um, it was a cultural idiom. I mean, it, it, it was always humorous. Like, I want to be a rocket scientist. So I laughed, and so she got tremendously angry at me and said, no, I want to be a rocket. I'm going to go into physics, and I'm going to, you know, go down to NASA. And I went, oh, I'm really sorry. And uh, so I backed off and, you know, became friends and stuff. And then she left, graduated. And about three years later, I saw her. And she was working for one of those green ecology, you know, uh, institutions. And she was outside. And I went up and I said, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. What's up? Are you, you know, I said, what happened to the rocket science? She goes, oh, I left that in my junior year. And <laughs> I'm now working for, I'm really into green ecology. And, and then she'd also uh, had started her own belly dancing institute. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, store. I mean, it, it really, she had cards and she had, you know, trained belly dancers. And she said, you know, if Rice ever has need for belly dancers, you know, sign us up. And I was like, holy, you know, yeah. moly. What exploration. It's, yeah. So she changed. And then another guy came in and he didn't uh, like religious studies. He was taking what they call a D1, which is a distribution requirement. He came to my class and uh, but he had to take it, but he became entranced with Sudhir Kakar's work for some reason. He just liked Sudhir Kakar. And then he took a couple more classes with me. And um, he pretty much, it was obvious to all of us that he was uh, gay, um, but he himself apparently did not know it. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a girlfriend, but there was nothing I could tell that was anything more than holding hands. So, um, But by his junior year, he realized that he was gay. And then he ended up getting out of the sciences and then applying for a PhD program at Emory in African-American studies. He was a white guy. So he he ended up doing, uh, you know, a PhD in African-American studies as a, as a gay white guy. But before he was just going to go into like, you know, you know, engineering. That's a, <laughs> an incredible transformation. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing that happens. Yeah. And so I always kid uh, my students. I say, so that's kind of late adolescence, which is also – Culturally speaking, that that's something cultures bring, uh, gin up. I mean, right. you know, anthropologists have long known that Do not like every that, society yeah. has that. But, you know, my joke is, well, you know, you go to school and if four years ain't enough, you go to graduate school. And if that ain't enough, you just become a professor. And then you're in an, kind of an eternal adolescence. <laughs> right. You can grow your hair long and yeah, there you are. the shoes. That's and... right. <laughs> but, yeah, all that's true. And um, but, uh, you know, I, you know, going back to the earlier thing, the Roy Moore, Alabama thing is uh, that's why we're a threat. Mm-hmm. 
because they can't take it. They, they like the world in not shades of gray, but black and white. And, and they're right. And they're going to hold to that, right? And the, the series of identifications and, and importantly, idealizations. And they're true idealizations. And idealization means you're blind by it, mm-hmm. right? Roy Moore did no wrong, right? He, he can't do wrong instead of he's done nothing but wrong. And he is more than likely a child molester. And this is white patriarchy yeah. that is basically now using Christianity, but right? they use the story of Mary and Joseph to defend, right? This is what happens. And we say, well, if we look at that analytically, there's you have to de-idealize all that. You have to become disillusioned with that. And they won't become disillusioned until it's their kid that Roy Moore, uh, right. you know. And this is what's happened with the Catholic Church, right, with Boston and various other religious traditions and guru scandals, things like that. So that's when it hits home. Um, but we're, we're trying to obviate that by giving them the tools to say this might happen before it happens to you. And so watch out. Could you uh, – and I, you wrote about that, and I had um, – Nairopa is the – wherever the – Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, who was it over there? there all the scandals that happened. Trungpa? Yes. Yeah, yeah. the Trungpa. And uh, so you write about yeah. that. And I think given what's happening now, you're noting, you know, yeah. white men, uh, yeah. the patriarchy, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the idealization, yeah. charisma. Right. Um, I, I just I, – I find it interesting that no matter what context – these dimensions of humanity when it comes to charisma power and you know when the idealized other is locked right. it up there right. is uh, um right. something happens and yeah, that's know, right. there's a, there's a power dynamic that comes that's out absolutely so so with that in mind we're we're talking around here about you know definition of terms yeah. um certainly in academics in in academia the the you have these departments mm-hmm. and you know what the humanities say, you know, ruffles right. the feathers of the biologists, right. you right. know, and then so on and so forth. Um, doesn't that same thing happen, you know, intrapsychically? The way that I, I I think about that is that we have these, and I, I think I could borrow from object relations, you know, we have these intrapsychic dynamics that, that go on that argue with each other. We project those out there into the mm-hmm. world. And so, of course, that manifests in right. religion. And, of course, it manifests in the way that we relate with each other from a sociological perspective. And um, so I think what I'm getting at there is, can we talk a little bit about this, the the pluralistic or the perennialism to to go a little bit into that, but also, you know, what you'd written about in the book that I really was interested by is this other split. Between and I'm gonna not know the word for the other the constructivist yeah and what's its other yeah perennialism perennialism yeah, okay yeah, yeah. can we start there yeah okay so can I just back up a sure, little go, bit go I'm, I'm gonna go. put it yeah. within the context of my field so that um, so that people understand where I'm I'm, I'm going yeah, with this stuff you. but so we were talking a little bit about the psychology of as being one project and so you have Freud you have Jung you have Maslow they're all psychology of people right they have their lens and they're looking at religion. So one of the things I also want to point out is another project is psychospirituality, mm-hmm. where psychology kind of becomes a religion. So Jung is in that tradition. Maslow's in that tradition. The transpersonalists are in that tradition. And this is where psychology actually has kind of a religious dimension that you don't find as easily, say, in Freud, who was a very much a reductionist, right. and a very pure example of what I call psychology of religion. 
Um, but 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 Jung's a little bit different, and 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 because Jung looks at the mystical element through Otto, and sort of sees and through also his own uh, uh, break with reality, if you want to put it that way, written about in his autobiography in the chapter he has a chapter called "Confrontation with the Unconscious," mm-hmm. where he breaks with Freud and he has to leave his job and he's sitting at his house, you know, outside the Bodin Sea, right, Lake Constance, and he goes down, he makes these little figures. And he starts, you know, having all of these kinds of weird figures come to him. And that becomes the Red Book. Um, So the confrontation of the unconscious is like what was legal before the Red Book. And then when the young family said, okay, you can publish the Red Book, then out came the Red Book. But the confrontation with the unconscious chapter is like a sanitized version of the Red Book. But that, you know, he he says that was my, you know— that was where everything was accomplished. I yeah. when I was grappling, and then my later work is really kind of a, you know, the public theory part of of my private experiences. So private experience becomes public theory. That's essentially what happens with Jung, and uh, he comes up with this whole notion of individuation, and then the. You know, individuation consists of divesting yourself of the false trappings of the persona on the one hand, and then dealing with the various archetypical figures as, as they come they come up, and uh, and that's great, right? That is a kind of a modern psycho spirituality, mm-hmm. and then what he does, what a lot of other people don't do, is he creates a social space for it, which is the therapeutic encounter. So Freud did that, uh, Jung did that, James did not do that. He was a just a professor. He didn't create a, you know, a model for, for therapy. And, and there's something very modern about, about, Jung's, about Jung's view. So I call it a psychospirituality because it's not just a psychology of religion, and it is that because he looks at all religious traditions as composed of archetypes, right? We're walking congregations of one. We are our own church. And then whether you like it or not, um, the unconscious will speak to you. And if you listen— then, you know, uh, you can individuate. You don't necessarily need a church or a tradition because it's in you. You know, it's like prego spaghetti sauce. You know, it's all in that, <laughs> right? So for two ninety eight, you can get it's all in that. You just have to pay attention. And, and so if you can go to Jungian therapist, you can, you can individuate without a religious tradition. Now, unlike Freud, Jung did think that since all religions are, are narrations of archetypes mm-hmm. and the bureaucratization of archetypes— then you can run your individuation process through through religious traditions or mythologies. That's fine. That's going to come up anyway in its view. Right. So you can do that. That's okay. Uh, Freud would never say that. So there's a kind of a religious feel from the get-go with, with Jung. And that is, you know, the, the in that tradition, you get the Maslow folks feeling the same thing because what Maslow said was that all religions start with peak experiences. That's his term for the self-archetype. Mm-hmm. And then later on, the transpersonalists say, well, Eastern you know, philosophy and religion is fantastic. And so what happens when Western psychology meets Eastern religion? You get a new sort of spectrum of consciousness. This is Ken Wilber's early term. Right. And you get different kinds of techniques that access different levels of that spectrum. And you can realize yourself, right? the Atman project, which is an Eastern term. And so you get kind of a Western, Eastern weird mix, but it's the psycho-spirituality. So there are all these sort of figures that, that, that are in this psycho-spiritual tradition. 
And so I thought, well, that's a project, right? And let's just call it psychospirituality. It, it's not completely distinguishable from psychology of religion because like a Venn diagram, they, mm -hmm. they have shades that interact, but that's what it is. And then, um, so that's the second tradition and then, or second project within this broad field, psychology and religion. And then the third is what I call the dialogical projects. These are where actual religious traditions get a hold of psychologies and they say, you know, you have something to say, but you also don't know some stuff. So we're going to dialogue with you. And the metaphor I use to, and this, this is true of, 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 of Christianity, and it actually ginned up what's known as pastoral psychology, mm -hmm. or in, in, in graduate programs, a lot of times they call it practical theology. And then you have what I call the psychology comparativist dialogue. This is more with Eastern religious traditions. And so you get this particularly after World War II with D.T. Suzuki and Shinichi Hisimatsu. They come over as sort of the great Zen figures. And immediately um, Suzuki talks with Karen Hornai, who's a neo-Freudian, and Eric Fromm. And so Zen Buddhism and Psychoanalysis, that great book of the 60s, gets a series of lectures down in Mexico that, that gets out. Karen Hornei starts a couple of journals, and she brings in a lot of Japanese therapists. So with the 60s happening, this becomes huge. And so um, the dialogical projects are a little different because it's, 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 it surely shows the limits of, of psychospirituality, for example, and so I go back to Jung's encounter with Shinichi Hisimatsu. It's a famous dialogue they had where Hisimatsu um, basically tells Jung that his notion of the self-archetype in particular is not what he calls the true self, which is a formless self, which is non-dual. Mm -hmm. And Jung says, well, well, can you ever really have a non-duality? And Hisimatsu says, yes, and suffering is over at that point. And Jung says, suffering's over, but suffering's kind of good. And Hisimatsu says, no, suffering's over. So then Jung says, well, if you, you know, fix the terms and stuff, I think we can come to agreement. And then Jung does not want the, the, the dialogue to be published because he thinks there are, you know, all kinds of problems. And it is eventually published, and Jung's not very happy about that because it makes him look bad. And he still insists that, you know, if, if Hisimatsu went to Switzerland and then he went to Japan, they could arrive at some sort of accommodation. But Hisimatsu is pretty firm, like this is what Jung said, and he doesn't know what we're talking about. So in other words, Jung's model, his public theory might be based on his own experiences, but his experiences were not Hisimatsu's experiences. Mm -hmm. So now we do have to ask ourselves a question whether there is something, you know, beyond the psycho-spiritual models, and, or at least there's kind of a cultural element or a personal element involved in these models. And so I, I like to call them ethno-psycho-spiritualities because that's what I really think they are. I really, I truly believe this. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they're not, you know, informative. I, I think that they don't, you know, um, address the, the, the deep wisdom within religious traditions. And it's even more complicated because no one religious tradition agrees on, say, the salvific aims. So Tibetan Buddhism has a notion of clear light, which is really different from the Tibetan uh, from, the, from the Theravada uh, Buddhist notion of sort of a, an anatta that's sort of where you have this kind of inside of the self just kind of falling like a film, sort of being chopped up and falling on the ground. And that's actually now gotten into some of the psychological. Uh, I read about that in the Psychology and Buddhism uh, article that I gave you. So it's, it's not even clear within religious, particularly religious tradition, what sort of the aim is. And, and Suzuki was famous for saying, you know, Japanese Buddhism has gone farther than all the other Buddhisms in terms of, you know, and this is kind of after World War II, how do you resurrect a national identity? 
Yeah. This Bobby Scharf has actually uh, written about this. Well, you say that Japanese Buddhism is the top of the heap. So, um, so it, it gets into some really contested terrain and very complicated terrain. So I think psycho-spirituality needs to be contextualized historically and individually, like with respect to Jung. And we really have to look at the models very carefully. And that's where the dialogical traditions come in. I am a proponent of the dialogical models. And the metaphor for the dialogical models is different from the psychology of model. The psychology of model is the flashlight or a, a corresponding model would be the um, the film. You go to a movie theater and you see the projector and it casts the film out on the screen. The screen is culture. The movie is film. I mean, sorry, the movie, the movie is religion. So what religion is, is it's on the cultural screen, any religion. But what is religion? It comes from the projector. What's the projector? It's your mind. So psychology of people are saying it's all about the mind projecting out a, that's what religion is, right? There's no God or like with Freud, no God. It's just Oedipus projecting out this displaced daddy figure. That's what it is. But the dialogical traditions are, they have a different model. And I, I, I use an atmospheric model to talk about that. So they say, when you look up at the night sky, you see stars. And they'll say, the star is, or how about better, the light is. There's a light. But what is the light? How do we see the light? Well, it comes through the atmosphere. And the atmosphere always distorts the light in a certain kind of a way. And what psychology does is it is very good at analyzing the atmospherics that bend the light in some kind of a way. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that the light isn't. The light still is. It's just that we're carrying personal and cultural baggage, i.e. the atmospherics, along for the ride. And sometimes people are only seeing the atmospherics, i.e. Roy Moore. That's all. He's just looking himself in the mirror. He thinks it's God. It's not. It's himself writ large. Right. So, but if you can get, you know, beyond the atmospherics, then maybe you can see the light a little bit better. Maybe not ever fully, but you can see the light a little bit better. And so the dialogical traditions are trying to use psychology to uh, basically, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, if I can mm -hmm. use a, you know, Christian, that's to say, yeah. to, to analyze the atmospherics. And, and that gets into some very heady territory because what the light is is going to differ according to various religious traditions or how to get to the light. And so now we've got this whole huge thing that we have to deal with, but it's really interesting. And, um, okay, so now that's the, now to get to perennialism, yeah. here's, here's, here's part of the problem is that a lot of people think that the light just is. There's just a light. And what religious traditions are is, this is a simple version of perennialism, mm -hmm. is that you're just looking at the light through like a different color lens. Like it might be green or yellow or blue or red. But if you get beyond all that, you'll get to the light. And, you know, Maslow's term for it is the peak experience. And Jung's term for it is the self-archetype. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's pretty easy. And uh, the problem is that that, that view was, was predominant in academia and even to a certain extent culturally around the turn of the 20th century. One of the reasons is because that's when pluralism was beginning to become, uh, you know, apparent. That is to say, Judaism and Christianity were not the only religions and maybe not even the best. There were others. And after World War II, there was a lot of talk about how we're going to dialogue between these various religious traditions. And one of the strategies, and perhaps the easiest, was just to say, oh, we're all talking about the same thing. So you can have your religion. I can have mine. We can shake hands and we can go along our way. 
And um, that lasted to a certain extent. Um, now, Houston Smith, the great comparative scholar of religion, was a proponent of that to his dying day. And Houston, who actually was a family um, friend, um, so in Berkeley growing up, I mean, he was over at the house a lot. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I knew Houston just as Houston, not as a great yeah. you know, scholar. But, um, but I would talk with him uh, periodically all during the course of my life. And last time I talked to him was... You know, he could barely move, and he was in a wheelchair, poor guy, and couldn't hear. And he said, Bill, I've always been a Methodist. I will always be a Methodist. And if you take the Methodist out of me, he was the, he was the son of, of Christian missionaries to China, um, then, then there's no Houston Smith anymore. He always said this to me. But that being said, I mean, he studied with a Hindu, you know, teacher mm-hmm. um, for a long time. He hobnobbed with the Sufis and with the Tibetan Buddhists. And so he was a perennialist in some kind of a way. Well, you know— Right around 1980 or so, academically, there was a bit of blowback, and they said, "Well, how can we, you know, verify perennialism? It, these are subjective experiences, and how do you empirically say that they're the same thing?" That became problematic because subjectivity in and of itself is problematic. Mm-hmm. And then they would say, well, what about textually? And they said, well, textually, they're really different. And you had all these what I call textologists. These are people who know the languages really well, and they go in the original text, and they you know, translate the words. And if you look at all the texts, you know, they're really different, not only between religious traditions, but within a religious tradition. So it becomes kind of hard to talk about the there there, you know, like what Gertrude Stein said about Oakland. Is there right. there there? And or at least how to talk about it. It's not to say there isn't a perennialism. It's just it became increasingly difficult to say that there actually is one. Doesn't mean that there aren't perennialists. It just it, it just became really hard to pin it down. So constructivism began to become more in favor. And what constructivism is is they're basically neo-Kantians. And I don't want to go into Kant, but what Kant would say is that Whatever's on the other side, the more, as James would call it, it you, can't, you, don't, you can't know that. We're not the kinds of beings that can know that. Mm-hmm. And um, here, I think, is a valuable analogy. I'll, I'll come back to constructivism in a second, but this is to harness the, the Kantian argument. Uh, you know, in my backyard, I got lizards and insects and all kinds of little critters who I did not like in the beginning. But after a while, I just started thinking, well, what it would be like to be a lizard, you know, and and so they're in my bedroom, but, you know, what if I was that little lizard, that kind of a thing? And then you start realizing that their world is, like, not only really different from ours, but you can't really talk to them. Um, I can't sit down and have a conversation with a lizard because its its mind is such that it doesn't have human capacities. Um, and I, I was always uh, impressed with this. There's squirrels that are on my deck in, in our house in Berkeley. And I'm always trying to give them stuff, and I throw it on the deck, and I point at it, and I say, there it is. And they don't see it, right? And then after a while, they do. And I'm like, I was pointing at that. You stupid squirrel. I'm pointing at the – why don't you see it? And then I thought, well, it doesn't see it because it doesn't really know what pointing is, you know? So the question is, I mean, is there, you know, uh, an angelic form of pointing? Uh, this is to say, are there other beings well beyond us that understand things that we don't? And so, as William James famously said, we are the cats and dogs in the angelic kitchen. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me because we like to think we're the king of the heap, right? This is Genesis, right? God created man. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe we ain't. And maybe there are limits to our mind. And so what Kant would say is we can't know this stuff. They're, we're like lizards. Okay, that's a blow to our narcissism. I actually think this is true. I mean, I've I've, I've come to the decision, this is true. 
So a lot of people are walking around saying they know everything. Well, nobody knows anything. They, right. they just don't, right? We are unfortunately limited, and that's just the way it is. And that's a hard blow to to really get that into your craw. But it makes you, you know, appropriately humble, in my view, which is, you know, going back to I'm a Berkeley boy. I, that's, you know, on the religious side, I, I adhere to that. Mm-hmm. And that is it's kind of a law to me. So <laughs> there's, you know, something on the other side. And Khan says, you can't know that stuff. But... That's not to say that there isn't a light or something, but the way it comes to us, it's like a conveyor belt, right? And it always comes to us guised in culture and in space and time, like linear time. This is who we are as beings, right? We exist in linear time. And and so all of these like cookie cutters or categories are ways in which the light sort of gets filtered, right? And it's not just developmentally speaking, which is what psychology says. It's It's in terms of our cognitive capacities. So constructivism said, you know, you can't get to a perennial core because it's almost impossible to say. I mean, there might be one, just can't say it. What we do know is that the light comes to us in all kinds of different ways, and the religious traditions map out the differences. So constructivism says, in some ways, we're constructing the light, and, and the religious traditions are different. They're very different. And we just have to, you know, agree to disagree here. And so mysticisms are different. Mysticisms what, are different. Just a, just a note of interest. You said constructivists are saying we're constructing the light. Well, the, the light is coming through us, but it's coming through the categories that, that, that make it us is human. It is indistinguishable from whatever the, the Methodist, to go back to Houston Smith, I, I, I cannot get beyond my Methodism. That's um, right. Okay. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah. So we have these categories, and when the light comes, it, it comes filtered through, the, like a conveyor belt. It comes con- con- configured through these categories that make us human beings. Uh-huh. And we can't get out of that. And you just have to admit that, you know— Basically, what's out there, there are differences. Now, it's not to say that there isn't something on the other side, and we can agree to disagree about certain elements in the way we construe reality, but but it does kind of open it up a bit. And, I mean, it, it, you know, James also said that on the other side, it might be more like a federal republic, right? It's not necessarily a monolithic thing uh-huh. like the kingdom. It might be a whole bunch of different things, you know? So maybe there's, like, multiple dimensional realities. There's no, like, one dimensional that you that encompasses everything but just multiple dimensional realities so like 13 feet that way to my i'm pointing that's to my right. left right now is the philosophy department that's know? right and w- w- what are your arguments there what what happens when you guys get together oh we well you know it depends on who you talk to over there yeah i mean uh philosophy departments have changed a lot over time so a lot of them do things like philosophy of science and they're involved in like little minute things or philosophy of language and they're looking at a lot of you know things about the way in which we use words. And, you know, in my day, when I was in, in college, it was more what they call continental philosophy. So this would be like Leibniz, sure. Kant, you know, Wittgenstein. Yeah. There are like two people over there that do that now. We can talk with them. Right? Yeah, right. I, I have no idea what some of the people over there are doing. And when they talk to me, like I have, I've, I do not speak that language. Yeah. It's like they're, quite frankly, I think they're just way too smart, but also like way too <laughs> focused on little tiny detailed stuff. And they're happy to, go about their lives that way. And okay, that's fine. So, but in academia, you know, you have to figure out who your conversation partners are going to be. Right. And so, you know, um, we all have a kind of a common discourse. That's to say, we know certain kinds of great figures of the past. But after that, we individuate, if I can use a Jungian term, in different ways. And our work is basically our path of individuation. And you intersect with other people, like you and I right here, where right. it crosses and we talk and and so on. So it's it's not like a... Huge happy family. It's more like we're a family, and sometimes you don't 
talk to your distant cousins. That's right. There is to it. Well, same question because yeah. I, I am interested in the, and I I I don't I I, I tend to view these things like yeah. King Arthur's table. Yeah. You know, I want a warrior and a lover and yeah. a. A philosopher and yeah. a mathematician, and right. I, I want to have access to all those energies. Right, right, and 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 I know they're going to fight. You know, right. I know, that's right. I know the. So so I have to be mindful, knowing my own bias, and then when I engage somebody that right. comes from a tradition that's right. going to try to find the the physiological point of consciousness, right. we're going to locate right. consciousness, right. and that has been a question I've been thinking through not right. not presuming to find an answer because right. i in fact don't think that there right. is an answer yeah. but i love the question so do you have these conversations i mean do it and, and if you would yeah please. i okay so this deals with more sort of a, a contemporary uh problem so we're kind of moving out of the psych of religion field and perennialism and psychospirituality is a form of perennialism, by the way, just to, right. yeah. and so, but I'm, I'm going to say peak experiences are not self archetypes, right? But they're, they're, and it's not Bucky's cosmic consciousness. They're, they're actually, if you look textually, they're different. So you can't really gin up a perennialism out of those people because they're talking about different things. Okay. Well then hang, okay. hold so, my so, question so, off over so, here. Wait a minute. So yeah. go to this because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm interested okay. in that. Yeah. Cause this, this is one of my, one of my criticisms of psychospiritualities. It seems to be of a tradition and they seem to be talking about a perennialism, but there's really no evidence when Maslow gives examples of his peak experiences that they're really the same thing as the self archetype or that because the self archetype has to be understood within the totality of Jung's psychology. Mm -hmm. And and Bucky's uh, cosmic consciousness, he talks about it being in a hansom outside London and he has this flame colored cloud that comes in on him and then he's he has this intellectual uh, intuition where he comes to see not just believe that the entire universe is a presence and at the bottom of it is love and that all things are working together for the good of each and every one of us, right? It's very optimistic view. And Charlie mm -hmm. Tart actually cites this in one of his, Charlie Tart's a sort of a parapsychologist at UC Davis. I don't know if he's still there, but he, he was, that, that cites this great, you know, beautiful phrase from Bucky and says, wouldn't it be great if, yeah, it would be great. But you know, that is very different from the self-archetype. I mean, you have to really work hard to try to like bring those together. It might be an, instant of a, an instance of a mystical experience, but it's not the same thing, and there's no indication that Jung ever had that experience, right? So wouldn't you, wouldn't uh, Hillman kind of argue for the multiplicity and not the monotheistic tradition? Yeah. There? Okay. Yes. Okay. You can do that. I mean, but that's a constructivist argument, in my view. So ah, gotcha. It's it's uh, you know you can't you can go back to the Greek to the polytheism you know mm -hmm. to all that kind of stuff, which begins to sound more like James's sort of you know a federal republic. But um, right. So, but, but, but what I'm saying is that even if you take that as a tradition, psychospirituality, it's like any other religious tradition. There are variations on a theme, but there are real variations. And so once that happens, then if you're sitting at the table with those people, like you were saying earlier, you, you do need to have a lot of types. You, you have the clinical psychologist, you can have the academic psychologist, you can have the historian, you can have the cultural theorist, you have the sociologist, the anthropologist. Yes. You have the textologist, someone who really knows the text really well. You have the philosopher there. Yes. You have the theologian there, right? They should all be seated at that table. Mm -hmm. And I keep saying this about my field, psychology and religion, when we're dealing with mysticism, that's what has to be there. And so my first book, uh, The Enigma of the Oceanic Feeling, which dealt with Freud's order and the Oceanic me. Feeling. I'm eager okay. to read it. I basically 
well, I mean, I do all of those, those, uh, you know, gymnastics in that book. And so as a textologist, I say that the received view of the psychoanalytic theory or Freud's theory of mysticism is completely wrong. They all got it wrong. He's not talking about a regression to primary narcissism. The oceanic feeling is primary narcissism, but Roland says, I'm never without this feeling. It's not a regression back to it. It's the preservation of this original feeling alongside the more sharply demarcated ego of, of the adulthood. Mm-hmm. And what, what Freud says is, I, I'm, I'm perplexed by this because this continuous sort of oceanic feeling, what the hell is that? But isn't, isn't, isn't <clears throat> that presence of my presence? Presence of my presence. Presence, I, I am aware of this awareness. That's right. Yeah. That's okay. right. So, mm-hmm. and Freud says, I don't have that feeling. And, and Roland's saying, I do have that feeling. It's continuous. So I, okay. I, I want to bring you in here because yeah. you, you at one point noted that uh, maybe Kripal had said something about Freud only got the third chakra. Yeah. And is that right. what this is getting at? No, that's a little bit different. Uh, okay. I, 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 will, I will come back to okay. that. So. But there's a second model in, in the Freud, which is this last Schiller poem that is at the very end of the first chapter of Civilization's Discontents. Mm-hmm. And he says, another friend of mine talks about yoga and about these deep primordial states. And I don't really know, know, know what to make them. So in the words of Schiller, um, Schiller's diver, um, uh, let him who who breathes up there in the roseate light rejoice. So he, he just cites this, this, this poem from Schiller. But if you look at the poem, I mean, it's a very edible poem. Uh, it's about this king, and <laughs> he throws a goblet into what a whirlpool. What a shifty! Uh, it is. Yeah. But the interesting thing is, is now it's a different model because it's about mystical experiences as a diving into the unconscious mm-hmm. to get the deep insights of whatever's down there. And then he embarks upon this dialogue with with Roland, who sent him this letter about the oceanic feeling. And basically says, you know, mystical techniques actually can upset the region between the ego and the unconscious so that you get these insights. Mm-hmm. And um, he later, the, the psychoanalytic model, you know, where it was, their ego shall be. Um, that's Freud's psychoanalytic model, uh, a motto that he has in uh, the new introductory lectures. Um, that's really in response to Roland because the, he talks about mystical practices in the sentence before that, upsetting the regions of the mind. You know, that's true. That can happen. And then he says, but what psychoanalysis does is it, it you know, tries to fill in the unconscious where it was their ego shall be. Um, but uh, what I do is I go back and I, I, he actually used that poem earlier in 1904 to a young poet by the name of Bruno Goetz, who was at his university, who was studying Hinduism. And he goes to Freud for headaches. And Freud says, you know, you have to worry, give some medicine. And then he starts talking about Hinduism. A guy named Leopold von Schroeder, who was teaching the Bhagavad Gita, which is a great poem. And uh, Freud looks at Bruno and says, you know, those mystics really, they are going very deep. And you have to watch it because you'll go mad if you don't. And then he cites the Schiller poem. So, I mean, he cites the same poem much earlier. And Freud did this. I mean, he had a very logical mind. And mm-hmm. so he would use poems for... So, and, but but this time he says they are looking at an all comprehensive deep insight that's well beyond the bounds of what norm, normal people uh, can, can can get to. This so sound, it, it sounds terrified. I mean, this, he, it's it, the it is. Point. You know, it is. is a tremendous. Yes, you know? exactly. Mm-hmm. But but now he's got a continuum between psychoanalysis as an introspective technique and the techniques of the Hindus, which are leading to nirvana. And he even talks about the the European misconceptions of nirvana. He says it's not a nothing. It's an all-comprehending deep insight. Uh-huh. So it suddenly we get a new Freud, right? So yes. 
at any rate, so I, I, I track, that's what a textologist does. And so I'm not going to go further with that. I'm just saying that, you know, I, I deconstructed the text and I deconstructed the perceived view. And then I, I looked at the totality of Freud's sayings about mysticism. And then I then traced the psychoanalytic view from Freud all the way to the contemporary day. I'm outside of that tradition, but that's not the Freud I know, which is... That's exactly right. So I'm, 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 but I'm, I'm not saying I am making this stuff up. I'm saying this is what Freud said. And if, if you, you can debate me, but you'll have to go back and show me where I'm wrong, which no one has yet done. And that book was 1999. <laughs> so it's been almost 20 years. And I'm, I'm waiting, right? Point, so point taken. I think people are kind of scared. <laughs> I really do. And I think yeah. the psychoanalytic, uh, you know, traditions. Although I've gotten a lot of really nice comments from psychoanalysts. You know, we're waiting for this book, that kind of a thing. That's, those are the psychoanalysts so, I know that, that, are, that are of that mind. Right. That are eager right. to, uh, you know, when I, when I have pulled the kind of, that, that kind of Jungian Freud reductionist card right. uh, to people that I know well, there's this moment of like, do you think that's? Right. The way I see the world, I mean, right. these are really deep thinkers. That's right. right. Seekers of, of, of deep, I would say, mystical experience. This this is why the book was sort of, you know, historically appropriate. I uh-huh. mean, it would not have been appropriate in 1935, but now, you know, psychoanalysts are like, yeah, that's exactly what I feel and think. And I'm so glad that you gave me a basis for arguing against these more sort of conservative traditionalists. I, I just don't have any time for the kind of uh, those kinds of dualistic ways of seeing the Jungian right. Freudian. I mean, right. I, I, I have a tradition that I and, and if anything, I'm I'm grounded in this tradition. I really love this tradition. It's very rich. Yes, and I, I now completely agree. Use that. Right mode of thinking to begin right. to explore other. I mean, I'm just grasping for more knowledge. That's that really memory. what my work is about. Yeah. I, I start with this, but I'm trying to expand the boundaries. Yeah. But I'm I'm trying to do it in as responsible way as possible, which is to say, if I can be as scholarly as possible about my work, which I really intend to do and I've tried to do, with all kinds of documentation, then then basically after a while you have to take me seriously, yeah. and and so either you say I'm wrong or you have to come with me on this little journey to expound the boundaries. And and that's really what I'm after. And so it might be after I'm dead or something. But, I mean, hopefully this will be the gift that keeps on giving. And I do think that the Enigma book is actually, um, 20 years later, I, I've gotten so many letters from people. I really think it's a classic now. Uh, that This is what people are telling me. It, it really has defined this field. And, and I'm going to segue back yeah. to – so 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 – you know, when I talk about these these different kinds of models, I refer to them as the classic reductive. This is mysticism as pathology. And then I talk about the yes. adaptive, right? So it's like they're like, you know, Buddhism is Eastern psychoanalysis, right? So, I mean, when they Buddhists talk about anatta, it's really not no self. It's the absence or no self of the transference self, which is what the end product of a good analysis will do is to get you to the end of the transference self. Well, so it's just kind of taking Western psychoanalytic categories and foisting them on the East. and But then there's the what I call the transformational projects. And these are really dialogical projects. This is where you get people saying like Hisimatsu to Young or people like Jack Engler or Jeff Rubin in the, in the Buddhist world. There are limits to psychological models. And there is something deeper, what James would call the more, that is accessed through certain kinds of meditative techniques for example, in, in, uh, in, or in prayer. And so we have to try to kind of build bridges. So the Freud got to the third chakra is one such bridge. Mm-hmm. So this is my colleague, Jeff Kripal, um, uh, used, I uh, can't remember where he got that. He got it from 
Ginsburg or someone talked about this. I can't remember. But he likes it because um, what he does is he wants to argue that one of the great Hindu saints, Ramakrishna, was possessed of unconscious, unconscious homoerotic tendencies. Yes. And that that comes out in symptomatic activity with uh, both his ideation and with his his disciples. And somewhere along the road, um, unconsciously, he understood this about himself. Not consciously. He never said that he was a pervert or that he played with his little boys, you know, Newt. He didn't never says that. This always remains unconscious. But it has a certain kind of dynamic need to express itself. And he kind of had a crisis. Ramakrishna had a crisis. And the crisis is summarized when he's a young man and he wants the vision of, of Ma, the great, great mother. And in Hindu uh, rhetorical literature, one of the ways to gain the um, the vision of, of Kali, who is a goddess, is to uh, cut off your head. This is symbolic of cutting cutting off your ego or detaching mm-hmm. yourself from mm-hmm. your ego. So he goes and he sees, you know, he's in the temple and he's praying to Kali and he sees the sword and he goes over and he's just about to cut off his head because <laughs> he wants to see the mother so bad. And he has this great vision. And what, what Jeff argues is that this... The iconography of Kali, who is a fearful figure, I mean, she's almost entirely naked, and you know, you can see her breasts, and she's got a garland of severed heads, heads around and, her. Yeah, it's... yeah, I got the sword. <laughs> is that this is, I mean, you know, the divine manifests itself in a lot of different symbols. Yes. And, you know, for Americans that know nothing about uh, Hindus, non Hindu Americans to know, uh, who don't know about Kali, I mean, like, what the hell is that? Forgetting, of course, that it's one of the most divine images, this bloody man on a cross. That's exactly. Dying, this excruciating death. Exactly. You know, it's so it, it really is. And so that's where, you know, you got to take the eyes of right. the other, right? So, right. and Mark Jordan at Harvard, um, who's one of the great Catholic theologians, uh, who's also gay, and he's like, you know, the, the figure of Jesus is really important to me and a lot of other gay men because we see a wounded man who's almost naked on a cross. And that's the way we've always felt. We felt crucified for our sexuality. And we're, that figure is really attractive to us. So the divine manifests itself yeah. in certain symbols. And, okay, there's that one. And it might be that that's his personal appropriation of a public symbol. This is what Ganath Obisakri, the anthropologist, he refers to public symbols and private appropriations of a public symbol. That might be Marx. That might not be, you know, some other Christians, but um, or it might be Roy Moore's in an unconscious sense. Um, Hence, Jerry Falwell, right, Right. who was, you know, had more bad things to say about gay people than anybody else. And you begin to suspect after a while that the baggage he's bringing along for the ride, right, right? going back to the dialogical store, is that unconscious homoeroticism, which I do believe is the case in in his particular instance, which is where psychology can really help Mm -hmm. in the cultural dialogue about, you know, how to really become a better Christian. I guess that would be the the idea. Um, But going back to the the Kali thing, so what what Jeff is arguing uh, in that book, which was, you know, as you know, I mean, death threats and Mm -hmm. the whole business, is that, you know, Ram Krishna basically was able to sublimate his homoerotic impulses because of this iconography and, and, and allow the divine to actually realize itself in him. Now, that's not just the symbol. There's also a, a bevy of practices. And the, and the practices were tantric practices. So now we're moving to a, a different understanding of the body than you have in, say, traditional psychoanal- psychoanalytic theory, which is mm-hmm. the body is the unconscious, has a somatic basis, a biological basis, sexuality and aggression. That's it for Freud. That's it. Those are his, that's what he calls his mythology. 
Well, you know, Tantra says there's another energy in the body, which is this sort of spiritual force, right? Call it Kundalini. And it goes from the perineum, right? Which is right between the genitals and, and the anus for all people. Go, That's the first chakra. And it goes up to the small of the back and then the two fingers below the belly, the heart, the throat, forehead, and then the crown chakra up top. There's some variations on that, but there mm. are this, this Kundalini. And it circulates. And the what the practices do is they allow, they awaken the serpent at the base of the spine and allow it to move through these, it's like a spiritual geography, through these spiritual centers. And when it does, it unlocks sort of the secrets or the conflicts of them. And so, but it's on a continuum. So sexuality is really the third chakra. And, but the crown chakra is the spiritual one. So what he's saying basically is that Freud was the master of the third chakra. But if you move to a different understanding of the body, and a different series of mystical exercises, you will get to deeper states than Freud ever knew existed, much less mapped out. So you have to turn Freud kind of on his head. You can insert him, but in a different kind of a spiritual geography, which deals with a different conception of the body, which is which is the Kundalini, notion of the Kundalini. So, 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 so the Hindus, this is a dialogical tradition. And, you know, Jeff, in my view, is engaging in the psychology comparativist dialogue. Um, and it is a true dialogue. And But he's taking Freud and turning him on his head by saying he only got to the third chakra. And people don't understand that about his work. He was actually saying that Ramakrishna does have this kind of bona fide mystical vision and that you know he had to work through this kind of unconscious homoeroticism. And then once he did, it, it still expressed itself, but in a sublimated form in terms of his relationship with his boy disciples and and, and so on. Um, so, which is to say that you don't really ever leave sexuality behind, right? Uh, this is what Jeff Rubin, the the another example of the psychology compared to this dialogue, this time with Buddhism, would say is that we're possessed of all kinds of different elements. Some reach mystical states, but others maybe aren't worked through as much, hence, say, the scandal literature. Right. This is when you get Songyal Rinpoche. He may have had some mm-hmm. terrific mystical experiences, but he just hasn't dealt with his misogyny. So right. his male narcissism is really needs to you know get worked through. And so when you go with a guru, you better understand that you know you could be taking literally your own life into your into their hands. And so you have to be very. This is the value of American Buddhism is that we're trying to add pieces to the puzzle. That you well, know. that's the both and piece there, and I think this is an important right. note. Is that this yes. the, psychologically? It it sounds to me when we when we pull together psychology and religion, my framework at least around that is that I I both have these personalistic historical contents that are projected out into my world and right. I'm in relationship with these, and that there is other. Yeah, there, there is, there is an other to William James, uh, to his point. You know that, um, and and I think that that's at least my understanding of Jung is as he talks about the self archetype. You know, the the idea that this, uh, the the uh, the connecting, the idea of individuating, of growth, of kind of there being something inside of me that's commenting and watching on my experience, and, and a different dream interpretive lens. You know, the the idea that there is something in our sleep that comes to us and just kind of yeah co- comments little touches like check that out and look at this but but dialogue with me right. so as you're saying the 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 idea of the dialogue I'm hearing too not not only the dialogue between you and I but also the dialogue between myself and 
deeper parts of myself that this conversation, for example, no right. doubt yeah. constellates, stimulates, and puts me in relationship with. Right. And I'll carry this conversation with me right. for, for a long, long time yeah. and be working with these things. Yeah. Um, I want to, so we've, <laughs> we've gone a bit over. Oh, <laughs> okay. uh, Which I'm great with, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering if we could, um, could we take it to two hours? Is that okay? With yeah, you? till six-ish or so. Yeah, yeah, that that's okay fine. Yeah, 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 that's fine. Yeah, because um, yeah. I want to give you some time to riff yeah. on um, the spiritual but not religious crowd. Oh, okay. So, yeah, um, thanks for bringing that up. So, um, I, I guess this sort of gradually began to dawn on me as I was going through a lot of this work that. Um, and, and reading, there's been some uh, books out on spiritual but not religious in the last 15 years or so. Um, first, you know, not at all, a couple of articles, and then a little bit more, and and now, which seems to be more sustained interest. And so I just yeah. kind of, you know, just got a bug in me, and I started reading through the literature, and I realized that this was something that was sort of emerging, but that needed, you know, a greater framework. So um, I loved your comment about well, it being on the dating sites. You know, somebody. Oh, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious, yeah. and that's you know how I'm expressing myself. Yeah, oh, because it's, it's, it's right. It's, it's, I, it's true. I envision it. You know, as yeah. I hear people in my office talking about that, that are yeah. maybe they're divorced and kind of reconnecting with the dating life, right. and right. questions like that come right. up. Like, how do I communicate right. my religious uh, identification? Yeah, it's and, a it's a good thing. That's the one. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Um, but uh, it, it just struck me as being first. I like the term. There's mm. another term called the nuns that have has sure. also been. I didn't like that term mm. because uh, I think for too many of us it reminds them of their third grade teacher. Sure. And I, the N O N E S. Yes, yeah, you know. but it's it's and I'm not trying to rag on my third grade teacher. It's just that for a lot of people, it's like they can't you know they hear it but they don't see it in, you know N O N E S. I don't think it's a term that's going to you know be to, to catch on. I could be wrong, completely right. wrong. But spiritual but not religious has a kind of a cachet that kind of speaks to people. And so, but anyway, I decided this needed to be framed. So I, I kind of, you know, uh, my chair, April DeConnick, was nice enough to grant me uh, departmental funds to put on a big conference. And so I brought down all the people who had written on this, the big people. Mm -hmm. And I, I got some uh, more funds from the university. I got like 30,000 bucks and brought all these people down. And they just hit it off. I mean, it was like, you know, it's like we're family or something. People loved each other and they, you know, loved the papers. I mean, it was just a real, like one of those lucky things. Yeah. And we had a great dinner at one of these Cuban restaurants and people were, you know, getting a little drunk and they were just like, we hate to leave. <laughs> and it's, you know, so um, I, I just kept at it. And then I said, well, first we need to edit a book out of this, which is there's going to be a book called uh, Being Spiritual But Not Religious. Mm -hmm past, present, and future, and I'll get to that momentarily. And then one of our graduate students, who's now editor of, of the Journal for the American Academy of Religion, which is like the premier journal in the field, and, and she's terrific. And basically, uh, you know, I just asked her if she would be willing to promote this group at the American Academy of Religion National Conference. And so she got an exploratory group, which we just had this last November, that had over 100 people come on a Sunday morning. It was filled with the gills. And so now we're going to get a permanent group because the powers that be are like, whoa, okay, this, there, this is huge. That. Yeah. So, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, I'm always, like I say, I'm a guy behind the scenes. And so I, you know, I, I ginned up Linda Mercandante, who, who, who's written the most recent sort of book on spiritual, but not religious. And a, a guy named Matt Hedstrom, who's at University of Virginia, and he's 
ginning up a series with University of Virginia Press on American spirituality that's going to do a lot of work on spiritual but not religious, and a terrific historian, and him and his colleague Lee Schmidt, who was huge in this field, he he also wrote a book on uh, spiritual but not religious. So Matt's going to be a co-chair with Linda, and those are absolutely the right people to be co-chairs. And then there's a steering committee. So Jeff and me and Andrea and Joy Bostic, who does a lot of work on sort of African, Afro-Cuban religions. Um, So, uh, so it's, you know, I think we're set and, but that's structural. So now we get to have this every year, this talked about. And with the book coming out, I think we're also going to have a big conference at Harvard in the spring. So uh, Charlie Stang at uh, Harvard got, you know, a hold of this and went electric and said, we've got to have a conference. So he he's the director of the Center for World Religions, which is a huge thing at Harvard. And so we're going to do that. And that's going to bring a lot of this crew back. And um, the the basic frame is is that, you know, I, I did the textology stuff. I went back and I looked at the genealogy of this term spiritual but not religious. And the earliest um, use of it that we've been able to find was in 1926 in, in a journal called The American Mercury by the then president of the Rotary Club. <laughs> this is true. You said, you know, we call ourselves spiritual but not religious, which just goes to show, right? I mean, it's got all these, uh, you know, iterations uh, through time. Uh, and then it came up in the Washington Post um, to talk about the memorial for the uh, Lusitania, the big shipwreck. And they're going to build a spiritual but not religious um, memorial to them. And then Bill W., the AA guy, used it famously right. to talk about it. And then in the 80s, it came up in movies and stuff. And then the Gallup poll used it to talk about American religiosity. So it became really part of our nomenclature. And now it's sort of, it's, it's out there. It's a, it's a useful term. So we didn't really invent it. It's been out there, and, but we are now going to try to invent it a bit. Um, and, and so the, the book is about the, all the cultural strands that sort of help to make this a cultural option for, for people today. Um, and there are a lot of different cultural strands going all the way back to Emerson and Whitman. And I mean, the New England transcendentalists were famous for talking about spirituality outside of organized religion. Mm-hmm. And they said, you don't, can't find spirituality in religion. You've got to find it out in nature and stuff. And they were, Lee Schmidt's written about this. They were the early proponents of spiritual but not religious. And they were very socially active too. They were like early feminists and, you know, social justice. They were really into it. So there's that strand. And then there's, I think, psychology strand. I think Jung is a huge strand in here. And um, so there's uh, sort of minorities, um, gay and lesbian folks and and, and, and African-Americans who felt sort of um, disenfranchised by traditional religiosity. So there, you know, we're trying to piece together the part of the book is about that. And then the present is, you know, what, what are they now? And so empirical studies sort of cataloging what the characteristics are. And then the futures are, you know, what, what can it become? So, um, Jason Kelly has a wonderful piece on global, uh, climate change and how going back into the past to the early transcendentalists, the cosmic consciousness people, they always talked about our immersion in nature. We have to have going forward for the spiritual, not religious folks, a significant degree of, 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 of action with respect to, to, uh, to the climate. And so David Loy would be a sort of poster boy for this. He's a Zen master in Colorado who's who has a new um, sort of retreat center for uh, eco the eco dharma, right? The mm. Buddhism that is involved with the, with the um, environment. And, and David is terrific. I spent a, uh, a year with him in Jerusalem as sort of my roommate, and he's extremely socially active. So um, I mean, he really thinks that's where Buddhism, socially engaged Buddhism, and this kind of spirituality. So, 
And then you sort of have to take on a lot of critiques. You know, what's the metaphysic of it? Doesn't really have a metaphysic. What's the ethic? Mm -hmm. It's kind of got ethic, but not really. Where it's rituals, um, it's, it seems to be a very big term with a lot of different types in it. Mm -hmm. And some are the, you know, kind of the spiritual narcissists. And there's been a lot of critique about them, but others are not. So mm -hmm. we have to learn to distinguish between, you know, different types within this very broad designation. I think this is where the, the work's going to go in the future. But if you set up the table with this kind of framework, then maybe we can fill in the, the dots, so to speak. Well, my first thought is the you know the idea of theory and having a particular theory in which to operate in. And I yeah. I would I, I would imagine I heard you note at one point the your critique of maybe the spiritual narcissism is that yeah, yeah, yeah. you kind of end up projecting yourself all over the place and you're staring at yourself. That's in the part of it. Kind That's of, part of it. Yeah. So what are you noticing in that community of people? Is there a, a tendency to look to ascetic traditions and mystical traditions? Is that what's happening? It, yeah, I mean, I, I think the broad definition, although I, I think this is heuristic, I mean, with more ethnographic studies, we can sort of fill in what really constitutes the spiritual but not religious. But in a very general sense, if you want to sort of take a, you know, a really huge framework— it's you know you can say what it's not, and uh -huh. it's not people who are comfortable right. with their religious tradition. So then, what it is, that's a little bit more difficult. But in a general sense, it seems to be people who do think there's wisdom in religious traditions, but they pick and choose, right? From it's a pluralistic culture, it's uh -huh. a consumer culture, and you can pick and choose, and you kind of create your own individualized religion, something that's right for you. So it's like going to a supermarket. So if you, I, and I go to HEB, right? So I see you there right there in Alabama and, you know, you're getting the organic chicken and the, you know, the salmon and the apples and the bananas and all that kind of stuff. And we meet and, you know, I've got my Pepsi and chocolate. So, uh, you know, the hamburger and <laughs> the crap that I get. You know, donuts. Don't forget the donuts. are very good. Uh, but we're still, you know, we're consumers that are, right. that are shopping. So it, it's the really individualistic part of it that makes it hard to designate, you know, exactly what it is. What are its institutions? They seem to be multiple institutions, and they're kind of entangled in various ways. So you might be Catholic, but you don't like Catholicism anymore. So you have some Zen going on. You get some yoga, macrobiotic diet. But you, you know, go to mass every now and then and sort of, but you've concocted this thing that's right for your own, here's where Jung comes in, individuation process, Right. right? So, and then, you know, for some people, that's really good. The, you know, there's a famous book by Jeremy Carrot and Richard King called Selling Spirituality. And they critique this. They think that neoliberal capitalism has gotten hold of this kind of spirituality and then advertised it. And it basically feeds people into like having peak experiences one after the other. And it's devoid of a recognition of the other, mm. the capital O, and social service. And they're not exactly fond of religious traditions, but they say at least they were very focused on the other and social service and and the spiritual narcissists really don't do that. And a lot of them are quite rich, right? They're just, they're rich. So, I mean, sort of white middle-class people can do this, but what about, you know, people in the inner city who, um, what about them? Do any of these spiritual but not religious folks want to go in and, you know, help the poor? And so, I mean, they have a point there. And, and, and I think that's a really valuable critique. My, my critique of them is that they're looking at a very small segment of the spiritual but not religious folks, and we need to expand it. And um, turns out that in the, they don't know this because their book was published before these studies came out, so I'm not blaming them. But there have been empirical studies of people who have been through specifically humanistic 
psychology, and, and they're very down on Maslow. They don't like Maslow at all, especially Jeremy. Now, no, Jeremy, Jeremy's a nice guy and stuff. He has it out for Maslow. It's kind of this psychology of capitalism. You know, ah, that psychology yes. could never grow in other than a neoliberal capitalistic framework. It's all about growth, and it's mm-hmm. all about accumulating peace. Peak experiences. So he's got a point there. He hates Maslow. But the empirical evidence is people who have successfully gone through those types of therapy end up being more likely to go into social service. That's to say, as they individuate, as they get a better sense of themselves and narcissism, they naturally want to help other people. So he's looking at a more kind of archaic. I know that. Empir- I know that yeah, from my practice. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So they, they use the wrong psychology. If they used Kohut, they would be able to distinguish between, say, a more patho- pathological narcissism or people, uh, you know, possessed by archaic narcissistic right. structures, as opposed to a transformed narcissism. If they'd used Kohut, they could actually see that spiritual not religious has a much broader spectrum of of psychosocial types. Right. So, but at any rate, I mean, this is the kind of conversation we need to have. And, you know, if we can just go on and, um, you know, whether this becomes something for the future, you know, who knows whether it's sustained, uh, you know, whether we can sustain it or not. But um, I have my own sort of, this is where Jeff and I sort of see eye to eye is that Jeff is, you know, trying to get all that. You probably told you about this, the archives for the, um, for the UFOs and the aliens and stuff, which most people, you know, think is good for like a 2 a.m. talk show. <laughs> Except for when you talk to these people seriously mm-hmm. and you read some of the reports and you do some scholarship on this, um, it really seems like something's going on here. Um, now, who knows if it's people on other planets or it's other dimensional realities sort of siphoning in. or But we do need to come to grips with this. But what's interesting to me is that you know, astronomy more and more is understanding that there are exoplanets, Earth-like exoplanets mm-hmm. around other solar pl- systems in this galaxy. There are 200 trillion galaxies. The human species has been on Earth for about 2,000 years in some kind of civilized way. Earth is 4.5 billion years old. This universe, at least 14.5 billion years old. It is the very definition of existential anxiety if we are the only. <laughs> it really is. I mean, really? if you look at it, it's all oh, dead out yes. there. And, yeah. I mean, it's un- I think you have to be a fool to think that there are not other mm-hmm. people on other planets. And even the former provost of Rice was like, yeah, absolutely. It's just that they'll never be able to get here. And I'm like, well, how do you know that, right? So, but see, this is Freud again. It'll be a blow to our narcissism not to think that we're top of the heap. But if that's the case, we need a new cosmology. You know, God created the earth and the heavens in the beginning. ain't going to cut the cake. You know, we have to ratchet it up to something quite different. And I think if we start to do that, changes can can occur. So I'm, I'm hoping to kind of push, you know, stuff in that direction. And uh, because I think it's probably true. Well, Um, we can we can finish there. I think that's um, that's a little bit when I think about this, these conversations, this podcast, that is finding the sacred in the everyday is that how do we how do we understand as we evolve and as things begin to really push up against and go beyond the models that we've had? How do we begin to understand and how do how essentially you know the, how do what is our origin myth you know what is the mythology that right. we're that we're grounding right. ourselves in to begin to understand right. the cosmos in a way that's yeah. beyond the limited way of seeing yeah. the world yeah yeah I, I agree with you I mean I I'm I'm more and more just maybe because I'm getting older but I don't think I'm projecting too much here I am worried about the amount of time we have yeah and we have to do this pretty quick I mean there is a sense of urgency I mean. Look, if we go, you know, like the dinosaurs, uh, you know, the earth will be very hot. So my 
what I tell my students is in about a billion years, the dinosaur people will come to, you know, they'll be looking back at ours. It's possible. I, I don't think we necessarily think this is going to have a happy ending. I mean, we have to make it a happy ending, but it's not necessarily just by some, you know, entity in the stars that's trying to, in a teleological sense, sort of create history so the Jesus or the hidden imam can, imam can come back. That's not necessarily going to happen. Mm. And it really does look like we're, you know, offing ourselves, if I can put it, you know, in the language of some of my students. And um, But we do not have time. So uh, we have to get busy. Hopefully thanks, we do. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Hey, well, everyone does their does their part. Yeah. And uh, this is about all I can do because I don't seem to be able to do anything else like be a really good musician or play center field for the Giants. So. <laughs> I'm grateful for your time. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks. Bill. And uh, I hope this helps in some yeah. way. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Would you take me?